I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as slashers, zombies, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. That's right, guys. Sit down, strap in, and hold the fuck on, because we're going Grindhouse. Well, happy birthday, Josh, you old fuck. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I guess I can't call you old, because I'll be the same age as you in about eight months here, so. Yeah, you will. We're recording this on the 24th of January, and we are doing both Grindhouse flicks, so this should be pretty fun. But before we dive into the movies, let's try to go over all the, the housekeeping stuff. As far as current news, it was kind of hard to, to pick what to put in here because, you know, we recorded our, our last full episode, so we thought, in November. <laughs> and then a Christmas episode a week or two before Christmas in December. And then here we are, almost February. And I'm trying to figure out like what all had happened, movie related, and honestly, most sites just have COVID and presidential stuff on it right now anyways, right? Yeah. Trying to go back and remember those two months. So I just went back and, and went to good old-fashioned bloody disgusting just to bring up a couple of interesting things to, to look at and then something that stuck out in my head. So one, I don't even know if we mentioned this in the show. They're doing one more season of Dexter, which I think is really cool because I like that show and it had a, a shit ending. Yeah. And I realized that and they want to fix it. Let's unfuck that ending. Right, right. So they're not rebooting it. They're just going to pick up where they left off and make it where that wasn't the ending. That was the intermission, right? And uh, I'm happy about that. But the thing that I'm most excited about is they announced that Clancy Brown is going to be the villain of the season. Who, who is that? You'd know him if you saw him. He's an older guy, really deep, raspy voice. Pet Cemetery 2. He's the Kurgan in Highlander. He was in fucking Shawshank Redemption. He's been a bunch of stuff. There's a lot of voice actor work now. Oh, uh, okay, okay. But anyways, he's like a nice dude that can also play a really good bad guy. So he's going to be up there on that John Lithgow tier for Dexter as a villain. I feel like. Oh, okay. We shall see. John Carpenter has a horror podcast coming out. So I don't know if that makes him the enemy now or. <laughs> yeah, but isn't it supposed to be like almost like a radio show where they're going to do like stories and shit? I believe so. It is a different kind of thing, but uh, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. They've been releasing shots of Halloween kills, which just angers me because I know it was finished in time to come out in October and <laughs> they didn't want to go straight to VOD and we have to wait till this October now. Yep. He looks like a badass still and menacing in the shots they've shown. And one of them, they show him standing on the porch of Laurie Strode's cabin as it's burning to the ground. And I noticed that he had a Halligan bar in his hand that firefighters use for smashing and prying things, yeah. which. I'm guessing that's how they're going to explain he got out of the basement because you can tear through just about anything with those. Yeah. But I'm more curious, did Lori have one in the basement because she's a crazy survivalist or does he kill a firefighter that goes in there to put the fire out? Ooh, I hope it's the latter. I mean, yeah, it would suck for the, for the firefighter, but that would be a badass opening scene. I just don't know like why he would be that deep into the basement with uh, the blaze going unless he heard him or and, and thinks there's a child or somebody in the house, right? So he tries to crawl through the basement window or something, pries the bars off of the Halligan bar. They could explain why, like, the townspeople are so mad and stuff in the previews, right? Because, like, a firefighter was killed by the serial killer and huh? this and that. So could be some things that led to that. And the only other recent thing that I saw, and it's kind of relevant to this episode, is Robert Rodriguez confirmed that they are currently working on an animated From Dust Till Dawn show. Like... Adult and okay, that sounds a little more graphic than I mean it to. Um, 
<laughs> like not dumbing it down, but just animated. I think so. Okay. That could be fun. You can do some cool stuff with that. You can go a little bit more out there on the special effects, right? When all you got to do is draw it. True. Did you have any um, recent horror news to add or? You know me about the only horror news I ever keep up with is Halloween Horror Nights. And um, Universal has gotten approval for a patent that they filed for an interactive experience. And the more I read it, the more it sounds like it goes with Super Nintendo World just because of what's been released of Super Nintendo World in Japan. Because there's going to be these wristbands and you can like hit blocks and like get achievements and shit. Anyways, but uh, there's speculation that it's going to be something to break up people and make them go through a virtual experience to get from point A to point B at possibly the next Halloween Horror Nights. Who knows? But uh, that's the only horror shit I keep up with. (laughs) That could be fun, though, because they did a good job with the Harry Potter stuff in Universal, where if you buy the wand with the uh, transmitter on the end, you could go around. There's like spells and you have to do the shape right. And it makes things happen throughout the two parks. Okay. And my wife and I, since we didn't have the kids with us when we went, we actually spent two thirds of a day just doing that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying I'd ever do it again, but it was like really neat to go do because you can like make toys start moving around in the stores and stuff. And it'll have the name of the spell and you can like look at a chart and it shows you the pattern. You have to do the pattern right or it won't work. You make buckets of water, like dump off a roof. So it it is really neat, interactive thing. So I'd like to see them build off of that. I mean, Universal already goes more in on the virtual rides. Yeah. than the full ones for the most part now. So like if that's going to be their thing, just make it as technologically advanced and interactive as you can. And you know, it's worked for them in the past. So we shall see. I just want to go on my annual uh, Halloween vacation. So here's, here's to a better year. Yeah. Hey, happy new year, everybody. We can say that too. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think to say that. Yeah. <laughs> here's to a better one. Cheers. <laughs> It's just so crazy because we're, we're recording this so late in the month. I didn't even think about how it's been New Year's since then. I almost snuck in a um, New Year's Eve episode, but I couldn't decide what movie I want to do. And it was such short notice. And I kind of wanted to relax and sit on my ass. So, yeah, sitting on my ass has been been nice. It's been a good break. <laughs> we're here. I think I said something like this last year, but uh, yeah, here we are. We're back again. Y'all thought it was, oh, it's been a long break. Maybe they're not coming back. No, we're back and we have a plan for the entire year. So uh, here we go. And as far as announcements go, I really don't have shit. I don't want to make any empty promises on shorter, more concise episodes or anything <laughs> like we've done in the past, because that that doesn't work no matter what year it is. But I am excited that we're at almost 10,000 downloads. Damn and right. by almost, I mean, this episode Mike could do it. If not, by the time the, the next one comes out, we'll probably hit that mark. And uh We've said in the past we'd like to try to make a short horror film, but there's going to be a lot of work involved in that because we want to try to do it right. So I don't think we'll do that for the 10K downloads. I was thinking, though, I would make us do something that I said I'd never make us do, and we each pick our top 10 favorite horror films. Oh, like like have time to prepare, not on the spot? Correct. And the last time we did it, I don't know, it was like the 10th episode or something. We cheated and did like... Favorite vampire, favorite this, favorite that, you know? Yeah. And I want you to prep for when we break the 10K mark, your your top favorite 10 horror movies. You do not have to rank them, though. Okay. And I'll do the same, and I bet there's going to be a lot of crossover, and <laughs> there's going to be some wild ones probably, but, you know. Sweet. As far as what we've watched, I feel like I've watched so much more shit than I have on this list. But it's it's been a hot minute, so I'm just going to go with this. I started Being Human over again, the American version, because I 
love that show. And <laughs> you know, I like my character pieces, and that was one of those shows where you, you watch it for the main characters, you don't watch it for the meta plot necessarily. And I'm through the first season already and and I'm loving it. And that kind of stemmed off of Sam Witwer did a get the cast together on his Twitch stream. And I watched it and it was hilarious. And okay. you can tell they all had fun with it and could barely even get the show made with the money they had. And uh, <laughs> they're going to do a script reading soon. So that'll be kind of neat to watch them do all that while they're, you know, drinking beer and hanging out. And I finished the Mandalorian since then. Cause you know, I love that show. I started WandaVision, which is the first Marvel Disney plus show. And it's a lot of Tom fuckery right now because <laughs> Josh doesn't watch all the Avengers movies. He's behind, but vision shouldn't be alive and he's alive in the show and they're living in sitcom world basically. So episode one was the sixties or the fifties. Actually, episode two is the sixties. They went to the seventies for episode three this weekend. And you're starting to realize they're in some sort of magical altered reality which is probably going to go into the Dr. Strange movie coming out about like the Eldritch horrors and, ah. and the madness that Sam Raimi's currently working on. And the end of the episode really kind of showed you a little bit of what's going on. And with that, this isn't a Marvel podcast. I'm not going to go through all the, the crazy Easter eggs linking everything, but they're doing a phenomenal job. I feel like they might be losing some of their Marvel fans that are only fans because of the movies. Cause I know a couple of them that aren't really digging the show yet, but they encompassed Nick at night sitcoms perfectly for every episode they act and play just like it because they don't realize that something's up oh okay they're starting to figure it out but i think it's going to be i think this whole next phase of marvel is going to be supernatural which is probably why we're going to get blade and maybe ghost rider back and i think mephisto which is marvel satan is probably going to be the bad guy and i bet dr strange shows up on the show so it's going to be kind of neat to see all that show up and sam raimi doing a, a marvel comic horror type movie is going to be great to see this year yeah but yeah i mean it's disney plus has become a pretty successful streaming platform so we'll just have to see what they continue to do with that i also started watching a discovery of witches with my wife it's an amc show it's also on shutter it's from a book trilogy it's kind of slow um so you probably wouldn't like it as much maybe i watched some of it with the wife so we marathon the first season on shutter and my wife loved it but we're on season two week to week right now and they've well I don't really want to spoil, but they've time traveled. If you see any posters or previews, you can tell they're not in the same century. So that's gotten a, a bit slower, but it's really neat seeing like the vampire politics with the witch politics yeah. and the demons. I thought it was demons. Once I figured out it was Damon or whatever, it, it made it make a little bit more sense because I was like, <laughs> they seem to be the only ones with conscience. But that's been interesting. I'm going to ride that one out a bit. I saw Promising Young Woman with my wife, which I was wanting to see that in theaters, but they all shut down here again when it came out. I haven't even heard of this. It's starring Carrie Mulligan and a bunch of guys that you'll recognize from comedies and, and sitcoms throughout the years. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Well, it kind of turns into that at the end, but it, it was a pretty damn good movie and it's really dark. And when you start realizing how creative they got with the casting and, and once again, I don't want to spoil anything, you realize that it was actually a really ingenious endeavor and basically, Carrie Mulligan goes to bars and acts like she's shit-faced hammered and gets guys to pick her up, take her home, like a date rape scenario, but she's not drunk. What does she do to him? Well, the previews kind of insinuated that she was a serial killer. Okay. And that's what drew me in, but that is not the case, but it does get that dark by the end of it. Okay. It's worth giving it a watch. You guys probably like it. And the last thing I watched, I'm so disappointed in myself on because I've been pumped for this movie for months. And that was 
PG Psycho Gorman, and I haven't finished it yet. I started it. <laughs> the kids kept coming downstairs. I couldn't finish it, and I was going to pick it back up today, and I have three small kids, and, and life just doesn't always plan out like like you want with video games and, and horror movies sometimes, so I have to go back and finish it. Really fun so far. Everybody needs to go check it out from what I've seen, and, and apparently the reviews online are, are just fucking insane for this thing. Well, I'm going to kick mine off from right there because uh, we made it all the way through it, which is actually funny because we had issues in watching the last 17 minutes, but anyways... It was fun. The first third of the movie is some of the funniest shit I have seen in a movie in a long time. Like, uh, I'm not going to spoil shit, but when they're knocking on the wall, it's like, I thought it was grandma. I already told you grandma's in hell. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. A lot of dark humor like that. And I know in the previews, you could see the hole where they find the gym and like release psycho Gorman. But I was thinking it was going to be like a gate scenario. The, the reason why they're in that hole is just ridiculous by itself. Well, when when I realized that this was written and directed by the same guy that did Manborg, everything made more sense. <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> but uh, it was fun. I won't say anything more than that until you finish it. We watched this movie called You Die, which I'm pretty sure is an Italian film. At least they speak Italian in it. That's usually a telling sign. <laughs> it's kind of like It Follows, only it's a game on a phone. And there's a 24-hour countdown timer that something's coming to get you unless you give it to someone else. But the thing is, each time you give it to someone else, all it does is reset your 24-hour clock. So you have to okay. continuously spread it to forever now to keep from dying. And uh, it gets a little weak towards the end, but it was fun. And it kind of reminded me of uh, Night Terrors, the augmented reality uh, iOS and Android game where it uses the camera on your phone to like you you see ghosts and shit in your own house and like it maps your yeah. own house and all that shit. It sounds like it could have been a black mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another one we watched and this was just last night was uh, Spontaneous. It's a movie about these these high school kids that start spontaneously exploding. Okay. Did Troma make this film? <laughs> no, they didn't. And it leans way too hard into touchy-feely stuff and it's got political overtones in it that are so and it's not even overtones it's blatant um it's in the dialogue that's just so unnecessary to the story but there is some fun shit in it and there's some funny shit in it i did remember something else that i watched dave and i were actually able to have a horror movie night right at the end of the year before we went back to work and i saw host and that was really fucking good if if you guys hadn't seen that you got to see it yeah yeah that's a fun movie it makes me angry that we didn't come up with filming a horror movie using Zoom I know, during right? the pandemic. But I guess it's uh, time to go out with the old and in with the new and uh, dive into these flicks. Hell yeah. Before I, I get into my film, I wanted to kind of go a bit over what Grindhouse is because I've had to explain this more times than I'd like to, to count. I bet a lot of our crew listening probably is aware, but some might not be. So Grindhouse movies came out, what era would you say, like 70s probably? Yeah, 70s. Primarily? Yep. And it was when, honestly, quite frankly, it was white flight happening, right? And and parts of town were just getting emptied out, and there weren't as many stores, and there weren't as many people going around. And you had these movie theaters trying to to stay alive, much like they're having to do with COVID right now. And they were mom and pops back then. They weren't like big corporations you know and they realized that they could get these really cheap movies that they wouldn't have to to pay very much for and play them at a lower cost for ticket fees and people would would come and see them and these movies were always really cheap super gory full of beautiful women being overly sexualized 
And they were all exploitation flicks, right? And what they figured out is they could do double and triple features of these films and charge very minimal fees and people would just flock to come see them. And then they went into like the drive-in era. They started becoming very popular drive-ins and they would just be full of, of trailers of other slot grindhouse movies in between. Right. And it was just, it was this huge thing that kind of died out. They were always like crazy car movies and, and post-apocalyptic and, and Jalo flicks and stuff like that. And Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez like these kind of films, but they're also just movie buffs in general. And Quentin Tarantino, of course, has a movie theater in his home. He would like to have friends come over and watch movies there. And sometimes they were cuts of his own films and and whatnot. And he would play grindhouse movies that he had collected. And he would even make little short trailers to put in the middle. So everybody would get the full effect in his, in his theater when he'd have these grindhouse parties. And, Robert Rodriguez came over because, of course, they're they're great friends to show him an early cut of Sin City he had made in his home theater. And while they were watching it, he was looking around at Grindhouse movie posters that Quentin had in his theater. And they started talking about how cool it would be to, to make their own Grindhouse film. And Robert came up with an idea for a trailer for his film. And it, it, the movie came from that, right? I'm sure Josh will go into that in detail later. And Quentin just wanted to make a slasher flick, which he had never done before, and a badass car movie. But Quentin's idea came mainly from the name of the movie he chose, Death Proof, and he just kind of went from there, and I'll go into a little bit more detail on that in a minute. But they wanted the movies to really have that feel. They wanted to take things from that era. They wanted to make a real movie. They wanted to use real film, because you know Quentin's against digital. He says <laughs> if he ever has to you know, go all digital, he's going to retire. He, he always said he only has 10 movies in him anyways, and he's done. He wanted to use real cars. He wanted to use real effects and he wanted to make it as realistic as possible. And grindhouse films traditionally looked like shit. Cause there's only a few prints of them. They get passed around and shipped place to place and they'd get scratched up holes, grainy clips missing. So they, they purposely have hard cuts in there and things that don't line up and accidental double takes. And they scratched the shit out of their film prints <laughs> to make it have that effect they did not want to digitally add it after the fact. And it's really apparent. I think it's a cool little part of these films. Are you talking about just uh, death proof? Cause I know they did a lot of stuff in post um, for that look in planet terror. Cause it was shot digitally. But I also know that Rodriguez said a lot that he was trying to save as much money as possible out of their budget. Cause he did planet terror first and he wanted money left over for Quentin And that would make sense if he was like, well, I got to leave enough money for Quentin to shoot his shit on film. (laughs) I definitely heard Robert talking about physically scratching shit and whatnot, but maybe he was talking about helping Quentin with death proof specifically because they, they did a lot of this shit together and there's obviously digital effects in planet terror. And I mean, Robert, his recent movies for the past decade or so are very heavily digital and and on purpose. So they kind of have a different stance on that. So maybe he was specifically talking about death proof, but either way, some of these prints have the shit scratched out of them (laughs) and you can see it in both films in a different way. But I guess uh, with that being said, it's time to to dive into my movie. I was debating if I wanted to go over the cast at the beginning or announce them as they came, but I think I'll just do them at the beginning so I can see if I naturally call them by their real names or their character names. I don't know. (laughs) But my film is 2007's Death Proof, which is written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, who probably doesn't need an introduction, especially on this podcast, but Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, 
Kill Bill, Django, and Glorious Bastards, Hateful Eight. There's so many fucking movies in there. <laughs> yes. But he's definitely an auteur with his, with his own style, and he is definitely someone who likes to have control over his projects. And honestly, I can only ever think of him working with Robert on other films. Usually it's just him doing it. Right. Yeah. And he is very much hardcore on, on using film and doing everything as realistically as they can. Definitely. And this movie, I wouldn't say he's the star because I would say the, the women of this film are probably more of the stars, but the definitely standout and probably most famous character in the movie is stuntman Mike played by Kurt Russell, which I don't know if the movie could have been what it was without Kurt Russell for his side of it. They did a great job picking the women for, for their sides of the story, especially on the second part of the movie. But he does some shit in there that him and maybe Bruce Campbell could have pulled off and it would have worked. And, and that's what the goofy slapstick part, Bruce Campbell, there's no way he could have done the action scenes like Kurt did. Yeah. Th no, there's no way you would have ended up with something like Johnny Knoxville or something. And it would have, it, it just would not have worked. I, I take, I take stuntman Mike seriously and that he's Kurt Russell is right. the only one that could have done that. Maybe Bruce Willis. And, and his <laughs> list of credits is insane, but just a few, I want to name are like the, uh, the escape movies, escape from New York, escape from LA, big trouble in little China. One of my favorite films, the thing you're going to name anything. That's not carpenter. <laughs> Oh, no, I didn't even think about that. But, I mean, no, he's, he's a real big player in, in Carpenter he films. He was. I mean, he's in Hateful Eight with Tarantino, right? He's done some more family-oriented movies, like Sky High as a goofy kid superhero movie. If you've never seen it, I recommend watching it. Bruce Campbell's the PE teacher. He's Say even what? In it. I've never heard of this. Yeah. It's Mary Elizabeth Winstead's first film, I think. Okay. Well, I'm totally in then. <laughs> but it's a, it's a high school where the kids with superpowers go. Okay. And... Kurt Russell's kid doesn't have any powers yet, but Kurt Russell's like Superman. He's like, he works for the president. He's the main superhero and he's got to go to the school and, and his friends are like the outcast kids with the not as cool powers. And like Bruce Campbell is the PE teacher, but he places them as a, as a hero or a sidekick. And like that group all gets sidekick because they don't have the traditional powers. And then they come in handy to fight the bad guy, but it's really cool. And then most recently he's done the two Christmas Chronicles movies for, Netflix, Netflix, yep. where he's Santa Claus. My kids have watched those as much as Frozen and Star Wars. <laughs> they love those films. They watch them outside of Christmas, and he is Santa Claus to them. And Kurt Russell even randomly said on an interview that he doesn't know if he's going to do any other projects besides Christmas Chronicles. Like, he's perfectly okay just doing these every couple of years and ending his career playing it because he has so much fun doing it. Huh. And... I, I hate to gush over him so long, but he, he's honestly, he's one of my favorite actors and they were trying to figure out who was going to play stuntman Mike and Quentin said he wanted Kurt and two other people, but Robert just heard Kurt and <laughs> he basically Jedi mind tricked him into just go with Kurt. And the next day he calls Robert and he's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go with Kurt. And, and it worked <laughs> out and Kurt got to do a lot of fun stuff in this. Like he gets to sing and play instruments and in movies a lot. Hell, he played Elvis once, which was also a John Carpenter flick. But <laughs> he got to drive some real cars and do most of his own stunts in here, unless it was flipping or catching on fire. So he had a good time. And that leans me into somebody who was very famous to me at the time, but I don't think a lot of people had known who she was yet. And that was Zoe Bell. Yep. Who is playing herself in this film. She's from New Zealand. Don't call her Nossie. And... <laughs> She 
has been in a lot of films as an actress, but she is primarily a, a stunt actress. And there's at least one, maybe two documentaries made about her because she's had such a prolific career. But she was Xena's stunt double the whole time was like how she originally got famous. And I don't know what she was working on, but Quentin showed up on a set to introduce himself to her because he wanted to know who did the stunts on something he had watched. And he was like, I'm Quentin. It's really funny. You can see it on YouTube. And he's like, introduce himself. And she obviously knows who he is. <laughs> and he wanted her for Kill Bill. Honestly, she plays the bride more than Uma Thurman did. Hmm. That's why you have that wig in front of her face the whole time. Anytime there's fighting, flipping, kicking, getting thrown around. Hell, even when she gets shot at her wedding with the shotgun and flip back, it is Zoe Bell. Huh. So he had to have her and he wanted her to play herself because he felt like she didn't get enough recognition as a stunt actress. And it's really cool that he did that. And she has some crazy fucking stunts in this movie. Yeah, she does. And I just realized how odd it is. I'm doing the the order that the actresses are in or, or flip flop from the movie. But I guess I'll <laughs> shut up my IMDb. Rosaria Dawson is in it as Abernathy, and I didn't know she was in Kids. That was her first movie. Yes. But I always think of her from Josie and the Pussycat. She's in Clerks 2. She's in Zombieland 2. She's in Sin City. She's the night nurse in all the Marvel Netflix shows, and she's now playing a very beloved Star Wars character, Ahsoka Tano, who had only been animated in the past on The Mandalorian, and she's getting her own spinoff show. Nice. But she's a very strong, badass actress, and... It's funny because they didn't give her directly that role, but they made those characteristics stick out in this film. Yeah. Someone that I didn't know before this movie, and honestly, I, I don't think I've seen her in anything else because I haven't watched a lot of her shows, but Vanessa Ferlito plays Arlene, and she's like the tough kind of Brooklyn chick, right? And from what I was looking at, primarily TV shows, she was on 24, CSI, NCIS, New Orleans, Graceland. So she does a lot of those shows, and she's usually a cop. Okay. Right? And she's like the out of town friend in this movie that comes in and she's kind of like the, I don't take no shit tough one. Right. Cause you got like the fake tough one and then you got the real tough one. And the fake <laughs> tough one is Sydney Poitier, who is Sydney Poitier's daughter. Right. <laughs> and she plays jungle Julia and she did a lot of TV as well. She was on Veronica Mars, Knight Rider, Chicago PD. She's not as famous as her father who was knighted. Right. But not, not to me at least, but I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of these shows, but she's playing like the, the tough radio DJ who also doesn't take shit, but you can see there's a little bit of the softer side, right? Yeah. We have Tracy Toms is Kim, who I love in this movie. And she was TV as well. Gone, truth be told, 911 were credits I had seen her listed in. But this is the only movie I know her from, but I like her character in this. Rose McGowan shows up as Pam, the little hippie chick at the bar. And of course, she's famous to us for Doom Generation, <laughs> Scream. And a lot of people probably know her from the TV show Charmed, the original one. Yep. We have Jordan Ladd, who seems to pop up on this podcast more than just about anybody else, it seems, <laughs> as Shanna. And, of course, she's from Cabin Fever, Club Dread, Hostel 2, among others. But those are probably, I think we've covered all those yep. on this podcast. We have Mary Elizabeth Winstead playing yeah. Lee. And she was in Sky High, Scott Pilgrim, the 06 version of Black Christmas, the 2011 version of The Thing, 10 Cloverfield Lane. So she's done some horror shit. As well as being in one of the diehards. She's in a bunch of movies. She's a fantastic actress. And the only other person that might be mentioned more than Jordan Ladd on this show is Canby Studios, who did the special effects on this film. Yeah, which is partially weird. I'll get into that later. But I do want to bring up for anybody that's like, you know, this is a double feature and you're doing them out of order. We are doing them out of order from the original run, but we're doing them chronologically in their canonical timeline. 
And honestly, this episode stemmed from, I just wanted to cover Death Proof and I couldn't <laughs> figure out where the fuck I was going to fit it. And originally we're going to do, what is a movie you want to do that doesn't fit anywhere else? And Josh decided in the end he wanted to do Planet Terror anyway. So we're just doing Grindhouse as a category, right? Yeah. Well, what's even better is my first off the wall movie that I picked that I couldn't think of any category to put it in. Jesse immediately said another movie to put it with. And I was like, shit. So when we get to that episode, it's going to be some serious shit. <laughs> Jesus, I'm glad I didn't make any empty promises about shorter, concise episodes, because this is not going to be one of those. I can tell right now. <laughs> but on to the movie. I only have a, a few behind the scene things I want to go over and the rest will come out in the movie. Honestly, this is two films in one. Quentin cheated and he made two movies. He did. He made a grindhouse slasher film and it is very dark and is very much a slasher film and has a lot of those POV elements and that Jalo style to it, right? And he did a phenomenal job on it. And then you think the movie's over and then we start again in a later point in the timeline with 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 the same character and he made what a lot of people call was just a car chase flick. I agree. He wanted to make a car chase flick and, and he pulled that off to great success, but it's also very much of that standard Quentin Tarantino style. Like I, I get a once upon a time in Hollywood when I watch it, right? Like he, he, he made a movie that was not him and then made a movie that was very much him and then tied them together into one film. Yeah. And I will say, I love this movie and I've watched it a lot, but it was a box office bomb. And Quentin Tarantino says it's the worst film he ever made in his life. And honestly, I think it's because he did everything he wanted to and opened up his heart and soul and it, it wasn't taken well. And I feel like that makes him uh, feel that way. And I'm going to go to that in a little bit later. Cause I feel like there's some self-reflection in this film. Okay. But I wanted to go over the cars. I'm not much of a car guy, but I like old muscle cars, right? I always have. And this movie has the full money from having a, a badass looking fastback Mustang that is barely used in the film, but looks badass in it to having an awesome looking Nova. And we get a charger versus challenger battle, which was awesome. And these cars are all custom built from parts. They started writing down how many cars they were going to need for wrecks and stuff like that and backups. And they realized they couldn't afford it, but what they could afford was to buy things from junkyards and build the cars from scratch. So there are things on the cars that I wouldn't have necessarily noticed because I'm not a gearhead, but like the, the door jams and the charger wouldn't normally be there for ship's mast. Like that was added for that scene for the way the car was originally designed, but they built them for how they needed them while still making them look like the original cars. Right. Fuck. Yeah. And the only other thing I want to say is the name of the movie death proof. Quentin was hanging out with Sean Penn. I don't know if it's at a bar or his home theater or what, but they were hanging out and they're having some drinks. And Quentin said that he thought he, he was thinking about buying a Volvo because they're so safe. Right. <laughs> and he just wanted a safe car. He saw that commercial of the car driving into the giant airbag, didn't he? <laughs> Probably. And Sean said, why don't you just get whatever car you want and then pay a stunt crew 10 or $15,000 to death proof it for you. Ah, and he's like, what the fuck is a death proof car? And <laughs> Sean explained it to him and the seed was planted. So he had this idea to use going forward. And I love the name. It's just, it's just phenomenal. But let's go ahead and dive into this movie. We open up with feet. Yes, it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. So the camera starts out right on women's feet because <laughs> that's his favorite thing to show in a movie. That guy's got a foot problem. But uh, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. so we start out there. 
And then we get a montage of Shanna and Arlene driving to pick up Jungle Julia with her gratuitous butt scenes, right, in her, in her underwear. And we cut to the hood of Stuntman Mike's car from his POV. We're getting the slasher POV shots, and he's hauling ass down the road. And he has the silver duck on the hood of his car from the movie Convoy. And with this being a car movie, Quentin really wanted to have that in this movie and he was having trouble finding it. And then he eventually found somebody who had the original mold and he remolded them. See, I didn't know any of this shit. And you know, my dad, your uncle was supposed to have a speaking role in convoy. That's funny that you say that. Cause I was going to mention that, but I thought he actually was in convoy and was like, they're waving or something, but he's in a background shot, but he was supposed to have a speaking role. I just remember watching it with your dad and, and him saying, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> He had a few roles like that. He was in uh, Walk the Line, right? Yep. But we go from this montage, which ends up ridiculous because the girls run into Jungle Julia's while Arlene's like holding her bladder and her crotch running up <laughs> and just keep zooming on it. And like, I know they're wanting to throw in Grindhouse shit, but it's just like, what the fuck are you guys doing here? But the trio get in the car and we see them driving through Austin and they're they're planning on hitting up certain bars and restaurants and they're arguing about who's going to get the pot and they're woohooing at all of the jungle Julia billboards that we see throughout town as they pass them. And they're all themed. Like some of them's jungle themed. One of them, she's in the kill bill outfit. And, and what you're supposed to get from all this is she's a famous radio DJ in Austin. Okay. Oh yeah. And there's lots of feet in the scene. <laughs> they're just feet hanging out windows everywhere. And you just keep zooming in on them. On this trip, we get a real feel for each of the girls' personalities, and we find out that Arlene's from out of town. She's kind of tough, take no shit from no one, making out with a boy the night before she met at the bar, right? And Jungle Julia is just, like, really badass, and she's a different kind of take no shit from no one. She's like the the group bully, right? Like, she just tells everybody what to do and bullies them. And Shanna is just like the at-home country girl that will let jungle just build herself up and then just shut her down. It's kind of funny. Like they all have these really tough personalities, but from a different angle and you could get that. They'd be a real group of friends. Like, I feel like this movie did a better job of making people friends than a lot of other movies. Do. Yes. They feel like they grew up together or went through high school together and it works. Right. And they're deciding the order of the bars they're going to hit. And we find out that at the end of the night, they're going to go to Shanna's dad's lake house for the night and no boys are allowed. And we also find out what the thing is. You know, it's everything but. I call it the thing. I call it the thing. Do you guys like the thing? They like it better than no thing. (laughs) (laughs) So they show up at the uh, Mexican restaurant, Guiro's, I think it's called, that they were talking about first. They want to go there for tequila and tacos, right? And you can see as they're driving there that the Nova is following the girls around everywhere they go. And Arlene steps out front to smoke a cigarette and she notices the car sitting there because they didn't notice it following them before, but she notices this black car sitting there and the driver's staring at her kind of crazy. And then he just burns out and takes off, right? Yep. Back in the bar, we meet Julia's friend, Marcy, who is an actress and she's actually, his name's actually Marcy, but she's hilarious in the scene. But she walks up and says, Oh, you must be butterfly to Arlene. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And jungle Julia tells her something she said on air for uh, the radio station and then has Marcy act it back out. And she acts like a, like a, like this real country Texan guy. It's kind of funny. (laughs) 
But what happened is Julia described her friend Arlene to the T and said that the first guy that walks up to him as they're bar hopping that night and calls her butterfly and recites a poem would get a lap dance from Arlene. And this guy had a very specific set of requirements to fit the bill. Kind of cute or kind of hot or kind of sexy or better be fucking hysterically funny, but not funny looking guy who you could fuck. But as they leave there, we can see that Mike is still following them in the Nova. And he actually has photos of them in his car from different days and different locations. So he's been stalking them for a while. They show up at the Texas Chili Parlor, which is going to be our main setting for the film. And... Quentin's the bartender. I think his name's Warren. I just always call him Quentin, but I'm pretty sure it's Warren and he's there. <laughs> and if you pay attention, you can see Kurt Russell's tank top from Big Trouble in Little China on the wall. Oh, nice. Next to this badass jukebox, which is Quentin's personal jukebox that has some one of a kind and other very rare records in it that he had packed and shipped here to have in the movie. Because he's that kind of asshole. <laughs> and it's got a name. I feel like it's Amy or something. I don't remember. But we see the girls hammering drinks, dancing, listening to music, having a good time, and they meet up with the boys. And the boys include Eli Roth, Omar Doom, who I recognized from Inglorious Bastards, and he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I've only seen that one time, so I couldn't I couldn't picture him in that. And Michael Bacall is one of the other guys, and he's playing, I think his name's Omar. Yeah, yeah his name's Omar, but the other actor's name's Omar. Oh, okay. right? so it's kind of like a funny joke. But he is a famous writer. He wrote Scott Pilgrim versus the World and the 221 Jump Street movies. No shit. And I'm assuming he's probably from this little Austin crew, you know, because they're all like a little crew of Austin filmmakers. But he's in the movie and he's one of the boys there. And they're all waiting on Lena Frank to show up with their weed to smoke. And Lena Frank and her friends that show up with her are roller derby girls. I don't remember how Quentin got to know them. I don't know if it was from filming another movie or if he just wanted to have some tough roller derby girls in the movie because he likes roller derby and it's real big in Austin. But... He had a funny story. As I saw him say on a, on a talk show, he was supposed to be explaining the movie death proof and in true Quentin Tarantino form, he told a story that had nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> and that was the slot. But apparently these girls could drink like most, I, mean, I don't know if you've ever known any roller derby girls. I knew them when I worked at Irish pub, but they like to get together and they can drink. They'll drink your ass under the table. Well, I dated one. And okay. Okay. There you go. <laughs> and they would hang out and they would drink after work. And he's basically, I guess they were going to, do an Irish car bomb in the movie or something. And the girls have him do one and explains what Irish car bomb is. And they chug it. And he's like, let's practice it one more time. And it went to them doing like seven of them back to back. And then they were just hammered. And they're like, let's go do it. But I don't, I don't remember if they shot a scene after that or it was the end of the night. But like, he was just talking about like, it was the first time he'd done an Irish car bomb and it's his favorite beverage now. But yeah, apparently they, they about killed him with those. So I thought it was kind of neat. Nice. But we get this really funny scene with very dramatic orchestral music as julia t9 text someone on her cell phone old school flip phone typos included <laughs> and you would think it's this very intimate like love scene or something and it's just ridiculous that that is done over her texting and it actually happens twice in the movie and i forget it happens every time i don't see the movie and laugh my ass off every fucking time yeah it's so cheesy but at some point arlene goes out to to smoke a cigarette and it's kind of dark next to the porch and it's raining outside and, and Quentin tells somebody to flip the lights on in the parking lot and the light lights up right over the Nova with the skull and crossbones, which are behind me on the green screen right now for Josh <laughs> on the hood of the car. And it freaks her out because it's a creepy looking car and she saw it earlier, right? Dun, dun, dun. And then Nate comes out who she was talking about making out with the night before. And that's the character played by Omar doom. And he's wanting to make out with her. And she's like in the fucking rain on a porch. And then he, Shows her his car and then he pulls out his umbrella. But back in the bar, we can see Omar, 
who's Michael McCall and not the real Omar, <laughs> going to the bar with Eli to order some drinks. And we see Mike eating nachos in the most disgusting fashion I've ever seen anyone eat anything. And it is so zoomed in on it. And I, I doubt that's even Foley work. Like, that's just him smacking on that shit and licking his fingers. Yeah, his Neanderthal. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know what the point in that shot was other than to just like, what the fuck? But it worked. But Eli is discussing his plan to get the girls to bring the boys to the lake house, and they're not going to be fucking around this time. We go to Jaeger shots. <laughs> oh, there was a time. <laughs> there was a time. I know, I know, I know, right? <laughs> that was the go-to beverage back in the day when we were growing up. And I guess Eli's the same age as us, right, roughly? Yeah. Ish. So I don't know, but he, he didn't write that scene, but still like that was, that was the, the party and drinking, taking shots drink when we were growing up. Yep. So, but somewhere in here, he, he's making fun of Mike and you can tell that Mike can hear him, but he's not acknowledging him. Right. And they're just really cheesy kind of BJ and the bear jokes. Right. Yes. <laughs> but Arlene comes back in the bar and she starts talking about the hippie girl at the bar. And did you hear what happened to her? Which they never explain, which kind of bothers me. I want to know what happened to her. I, I guess she got stood up because somebody says that later. Right. True. I think the sheriff does at the end, but Julia knows who it is and she doesn't like her and starts talking shit about her. And, and it's Pam played by Rose McGowan. But Pam then asks Quentin or Warren or whatever you want to call him, if he could vouch for anyone to give her a ride home. And then Mike obliges by just sliding the keys down the bar to her. And she's kind of off put by him. And he explains that he's not drinking any booze and she wants to know why he's hanging out in a bar. And he explains that he likes to hang out the bar for other things than alcohol, like nachos, women, <laughs> The fellowship of fascinating individuals like Warren. And he says that alcohol is just a lubricant for all the encounters that a bar offers. Love that quote. Yeah. And he explains that he's been drinking. I don't remember. Like, root, it's not root beer. But he's drinking something. Club soda. Yeah. Right. He's just drinking club soda the whole time. And then he's going to finish the night off with his grand finale of virgin pina colada. And that's when he'll take her home. <laughs> and. She calls him a cowboy and he gets visibly irritated for a second. And then he explains that he's a stunt man and it's an easy mistake. She finds out that his name is Stuntman Mike and she doesn't believe him and ask Warren, like, who is this guy? And he verifies it. Hey, Warren, who is this guy? Stuntman Mike. And who the hell is Stuntman Mike? The girls continue to hammer shots in the background, and then we get a booty dance from Arlene at Quentin's jukebox. And during this, Pam and Mike bond over said virgin pina colada, and we find out that Pam and Julia really don't like each other, and they've known each other since kindergarten, and Julia used to bully her, right? Yep. The girls go outside with Lena to smoke some pot, and Mike approaches them awkwardly to talk to Julia. And he has this very awkward sneeze scene. <laughs> that only Kurt could pull off. I don't even know how to explain it. Oh my God, just watch it. But he recognized who she was and brought it up to Pam. That's how the discussion started. And there's like a billboard of her right by them. And he's like, have I seen you somewhere before? And you can tell he's fucking with them. Yeah. And uh, they asked if we want some pot and he, he won't partake in it, right? So he heads back to the bar and he starts going over the shows that he was a stuntman in to Pam, Warren, and some other girls in there. And they're all too young to know who or what shows he's fucking talking about. Yep. But from the story, we find out that he primarily got into car stunts. And when asked how he got into the stunt business, he said the same way every stunt man does. Their brother talked him into it. And she said, who's your brother? And he said, stuntman Bob. <laughs> but Arlene has been visibly bummed out the more 
the movie progresses and you don't really know why. And she's getting pretty intoxicated and she tells Julia that she's ready to head to the lake house. No boys. And then Mike shows up with some beers for her and Julia and calls Arlene butterfly and then recites the poem. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, and I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Do you hear me, butterfly? Miles to go before you sleep. And this is actually a poem. It wasn't written for the movie. And I'm, I saw Quentin say why he decided to use it. I don't remember. I'm sorry. But it, it's kind of like a cheesy line of dialogue. But when you find out it was actually a poem, it, it kind of makes more sense. And if it's supposed to be like this stunt that you're trying to get some random guy, right, to walk up to a girl, you'd want it to be something ridiculous. And, and yeah. He says it, and then Julia interrupts to say that Arlene already broke off that dance. And Mike calls bullshit on it and says, because he was at Guero's when they were there, and she clearly didn't. And they want to know if he's stalking them. And he's like, no, that's why I love Austin. It's just so damn small. <laughs> and Arlene's just staring at him kind of creepy, and he asks if he frightens her. And she says, no. And he says, is it my scar? And she goes, no. It's your car. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. It's my mother's car. Right? Like, just a great line there. And he asks again about his lap dance. And once again, he's told that it had already happened. He calls bullshit again. And he says he knows that she's upset because no one has walked up to her all night and asked her. And it's bummed her out because she really thought it would happen, even though she acts like she didn't want it to. And she says she wants to give him a rain check. And he said he knows that she's leaving town in a couple of days from the radio show. And that rain check would be worthless. So then he decides to tell her about his book and he starts doing like his John Wayne impersonations and things like that. It's like, I'm going to put you in my book and you know, I got a book and he's like, unlike everybody else, I actually have a book and it has <laughs> everyone I've ever met and I'm going to have to file you under chicken shit. <laughs> and at this point, you know, she, she toughens up and she agrees to give him the lap dance and Julia's upset because he did not meet that long list of criteria from earlier. Mike goes in the bar and he gets his lap dance and it's a, it's a long scene to the whole song. And that record is supposed to be extremely rare that that song is from. So that's why he wanted to use that. But we see Pam's watching the crazy babysitter twins who we'll find out more about later and everyone else in the bar. And, uh, it's a little, it's a pretty erotic lap dance. I wonder if Goldie Hawn knew about this, <laughs> but at this point, we're going to dive into the first third act. I guess we're going to call it. <laughs> oh, okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> the film abruptly cuts from the lap dance to the parking lot as everyone's leaving. Like a hunk of film got cut out. I'm going to be honest. When I was first a projectionist, when I was 17, I've destroyed quite a large section of Mission Impossible one time. And my movie jumped like that. But that's what happens when the projectionist fucks up and splicing <laughs> the film together. But it was not intentional. And we see that the girls are all getting into, I guess it was Shanna's car, right? But Lena Frank's going to drive it. And yeah. Pam goes to leave with Mike. And she explains to the double fucks how she's not going to fuck Mike. And he keeps letting her know, I can hear you. Because they keep going on and on. Like, somebody's getting laid. And she's like, I'm not fucking him. I can hear you. And it's just kind of a gag that goes. Yeah, because he's standing like 10 feet behind them through all this, leaning up against his car. <laughs> right, right. And the line double fucks is funny because when they were shooting Planet Terror, she was getting ready for like wake up in the, the bed scene with her legs sawed off. Uh -huh. And Quentin and Robert kept peeking in through the curtain and fucking with her and making her laugh before they'd start. And she's like, all right, listen here, you double fucks. <laughs> and they're like, that shit's going in death proof. Like, we want that. So that was the original line of hers put in the movie. That sounds like Rose McGowan. 
<laughs> but he walks her to her car and she sees it and she's freaked out a little bit by the skull and crossbones. And he explains it's the safest car on the road because it's death proof. He then explains what death proof means to her. And then she sees her seat or lack thereof <laughs> because it's a crash box with a post and he like plops a metal ledge for her to sit on in there. And the girls drive off drunk in their car as Mike gets into his car. And the girls go left and he stops at the end of the driveway and Mike asked her if she's going to go left or right. And she says, right. And then the music gets really fucking dark and he looks at her creep and he, and he tells her that it's a shame that she's going right because he had a 50, 50 chance of her saying left. And either way, they're both going left and it would have taken her a while to notice if she was going left and she wouldn't have gotten scared for a while. But since she's going the other way, she's going to have to start getting scared immediately. Favorite line in the film, I think. Yeah, this is when shit gets cold. Oh, yeah. He starts to haul ass down the road, and I think it's raining during all this. It's at least been raining. And he keeps slamming Pam in the crash box over and over again by jerking the steering wheel at high speeds. Yeah. And he's trying to get her to shut up, as she's begging for her life, and she says that she gets it. It's a joke, and he can let her out, and she won't tell anyone. And he lets her know that when he said that the car was death proof, he meant it, that it really is 100% death proof. However, there's a catch. You get the benefit of it, honey. You really need to be sitting in my seat. <laughs> His delivery is so good. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And it's that John Carpenter, Kurt Russell caricature. Yes. That's what you're getting in this for the most part. Yeah. But at this point, he locks up the brakes and he slams her into the dash, completely busting up her face and, and mostly knocking her out. And then he says it's time to catch his other girlfriend. And he chunks the pictures out the window of his car and takes off. We see the girls rocking out completely fucked up to a song in the car as Mike blasts past them, spins the car around, turns off his headlights, burns out and floors it straight towards the girls in the pitch black dark. They have no clue that he's coming for them. And he turns on the lights at the last second and he rams head on into them. And we get multiple takes from different camera angles of the car smashing into the other car. And on each one of these takes, we see the gruesome death of each one of the girls, including Julia's leg getting ripped off because it's hanging out the window and flying through there and flopping. Yes. Shanna flying out the front window and hitting the ground and sliding. Arlene's face getting smashed by the tire as it rams up the, the roof of the car and has a burnout on her head. And we even get a Wilhelm scream in here somewhere. Yeah, that is my favorite thing about the movie that you literally like, here's A, here's B, here's C, here's D. <laughs> like it goes through all of them. It is so good. And that had to be one of those scenarios that was too expensive to buy a bunch of old Novas. Because <laughs> they had to crush it so many times, you know. <laughs> but we then cut to the hospital with some doctors and cops that are going to seem really familiar to you here in a little bit. <laughs> And the doctor explains that Mike got banged up real good. He's got some bruises and a smashed finger, you know? And the sheriff is like, this is bullshit. And the doctor's his daughter, which we'll go into that more later as well. And the, the deputy's his son. And he lets his son know that he thinks Mike is a serial killer. And he likes to kill girls with his car. And he lets them know that his theory is that he lets the girls get nice and liquored up and he stays sober so that he can, you know, pass sobriety test and not a jury in the world would, would convict him a homicide on it. And he even had a girl in the car that he couldn't even get him with a hitchhiking charge because everyone in the bar vouched that she was stranded by her boyfriend and drunk and needed a ride and asked him for it. 
and he's just being a saint, right? And he lets his son know that he thinks it's a sexual thing with penetration and probably the only way the guy can shoot his goo. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing for him to say. And that was added afterwards because there was originally going to be a scene where Mike is in his car, his Nova, upside down after smashing on the girls and he's beaten off. Oh. And Quentin decided that was too much and decided to go with that line instead. That's surprising. He said that, but I wonder if maybe Kurt didn't really want to have a scene of him jerking off upside down in a car either. I'll go with that. And the end. Oh, wait. It's not, because I basically have a whole other fucking movie to cover before we get to Josh's movie. Act two. <laughs> Opening scene part two. Exactly. We see that it's 14 months later, and we're now in Lebanon, Tennessee. And we can see Mike fishtailing in a charger that he has now into a parking lot and lighting a cigarette as he parks. It then cuts to black and white, and we can see a new group of girls parked next to him in the Mustang I mentioned earlier. And, oh, yeah, feet! <laughs> we can see Lee telling Kim about making out with the rock on set, and Abernathy is in the back, not awake, but asleep, and asking for sugar-free Red Bull. We find out that they are on their way to the airport to pick up their friend Zoe. And Kim goes into the mini mart for supplies and Mike gets out of the car to play with Abernathy's feet because that's Rosario Dawson asleep in the back with like a sleeping mask on with their feet hanging out. And he's like licking at him and tickling him. And she wakes up for a second, but he had pre thrown his car keys out in the parking lot. So he could walk out and go, Oh God damn, where's my fucking keys and pick them up and get in his car. Right. Yeah. And then he just takes off hauling ass out the parking lot and they start making jokes about little dick. Right. And Abernathy decides to get out of the car to have a smoke on the hood, and she notices that his charger is back in front of them again, and he does another burnout and takes off. At this point, the movie cuts back into color. I'd love to know why he did the, like, five minutes of black and white, because I said that briefly, but it was like a five-minute scene. Yeah, I got nothing. I have no clue, and I, I didn't get a chance to watch this with commentary, so. But she, too, heads into the mini-mart, and she grabs this month's issue of Allure because Lee's in it, because she's an actress, right? And, and... I know I said it at the beginning, but it's been a bit. Lee is Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Abernathy is Rosaria Dawson. And Kim is Tracy Toms. While she's checking out with her magazine, the clerk creepily tells her that he has other fashion magazines that are hard to find behind the counter, including this month's issue of Italian Vogue. So you thought he was going to go with like the porno mag route. <laughs> and then you find out that he has Italian Vogue back there. And they decide to go three ways in on this. And this dude will be familiar because he plays another character in, in the next film, but I recognize him from Tromeo and Juliet. Wait, who is it? I think he's the one that owns the tattoo parlor that's Tromeo's cousin. Major pain, Murray, major, major pain. pain. But I, I like the guy. I just haven't seen him in a bunch of shit. He, he could have possibly been in a, a shit ton of movies that I'm just not aware of. <laughs> but we then cut to the POV of a camera lens as Mike is stalking and take pictures of the girls as they're walking through the parking lot, now accompanied by Zoe. In true Grindhouse fashion, they, they even threw a cheerleader in the movie because Lee's in a cheerleader outfit because of the film they're shooting, okay? So they've tried to throw in, like, any stereotypical Grindhouse thing they could, and, and that was just like, let's throw a cheerleader in there. Yep. In the car, Zoe's trying to catch up with the girls on the road, and we find out that the girls are all working on a movie together, and the girls being Kim, Lee, and Abernathy, and they have the next three days off. And we also find out that Lee is dating a set electrician that looks like The Rock, but he's not actually The Rock, so they just call him The Rock. And apparently, I don't remember what movie it was before this. It might have been Kill Bill or something. But if you watch the credits, the set electrician's The Rock, it's blah, 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 The Rock in, in the credits. Oh, like, there's okay. actually a guy that goes by The Rock. And we cut to the girls eating at a diner, and we can see that Zoe, Kim, and Abernathy have been friends for a long time. 
and Lee's new to the group. And Abernathy's telling a story about her trying to take a picture one time and Zoe trying to make her back up a little further and she keeps making her back up and she almost falls into a ditch that would have killed her. It was such a far drop, but she stopped herself in time and gets mad at Zoe, who then goes over to check the ditch out. And while looking at it, falls into the fucking ditch and lands on her feet. And she was fine because she's Zoe the cat. But the point of the story was that they all have their own skills. Abernathy was smart enough to not fall in the hole, but Zoe knew the fucking hole was there and went to go check it out and still fell in the fucking hole. So different skills. Hey, I resemble that remark. (laughs) I love that line and I use it weekly ever since I saw this film. And every time I say the line, nobody knows what the fuck I'm talking about. And they correct me and say, you mean resent. (laughs) Makes me mad every time, but it's a great line. And apparently Zoe was really nervous to this movie. This is the first acting role she had had. Like besides being a stunt double. Yeah. And she would make the girls come over and, and bribe them with wine to run lines constantly. Cause she was so nervous to do it. And I think she did a, a fine job. Some of her lines, you can tell her kind of like her doing accents and stuff or, or a little off, but like, I just kind of took it as, I don't know. Like it just, it just worked out in the movie, but it, it's really interesting that she was scared about her lines, you know, with this being her first movie, but she's had several acting roles past this. So it worked out for her. There you go. But we also find out that Kim carries a gun on her ankle named Roscoe for her protection. And we find out that Abernathy does not approve and doesn't like guns. We also find out that all Zoe wants to do while she is in America is drive a Detroit muscle car, specifically a 1970 Dodge Challenger with a 440 engine, just like in Vanishing Point. And she happens to have found one in Auto Trader or something, right? Like she was researching before she came to meet them yep. from New Zealand. And speaking in New Zealand, Lee makes the mistake of calling her an Aussie and she acts like real offended. And they go through the you don't call a Kiwi an Aussie speech. And from this conversation, we can really gather that Kim and Zoe are both huge gearheads. And if you pay attention, Mike is eating in the diner behind them and he'll turn his head and peek and spy at him every now and then. Yeah, because it's doing a straight-up Tarantino. The camera's constantly circling around the table through their conversation. Every time it comes by, it's like, oh, shit, until eventually he's not there anymore. (laughs) Yes. But the girls drive up to the farm that's selling the car, and it's going to look real familiar in a little bit because it's going to be a barbecue joint later. Ah. But they park next to the Challenger, and it is badass-looking and white and exactly what they were looking for, just like Kowalski's car at Vanishing Point. And they step off to the side to... um, discuss the car right away from the farmer and I, i'm pretty sure that guy's like water boy and a bunch of goofy shit like that but he's real tall mm-hmm, yeah like deep spoken guy and, and he's just playing like a hillbilly right he is that guy from water boy you're exactly right the, he's also the uh euro hooker guy in uh grandma's boy because they're both adam sandler okay movies. okay <laughs> he's in a lot of adam sandler movies i think yes but we find out that zoe wants to play ship's mast and kim is against it because zoe said that she would never ever do that again and to not ever let her however She said that she would not have made that rule to stop her from doing it if she would have known there would have been a vanishing point challenger in the U.S. on the table. (laughs) And as adamant as Kim was about whooping her ass and not letting her do it a moment ago, she now agrees that that point kind of makes sense. And she do it as long as Zoe became her back cracking slave, rubs her feet and puts moisturizer on her butt when she gets out of the shower while she's in town. (laughs) That's not a deal I would make with one of my bros. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not putting moisturizer in your ass under any circumstance. <laughs> but they want to leave Abernathy and Lee as collateral to be able to test drive the car, right? Or else the guy won't let him drive it. And Abernathy's mad because she gets left out with shit sometimes that 
Kim and Zoe want to do, and they always use her being a mom as an excuse, and she has to be responsible, and they're like, we're about to do something really fucking dumb, and you don't want to be a part of it. And she's like, no, I'm fucking going with you. This is bullshit. And Zoe says something along the lines of, besides, I don't even think we're going to be able to talk to the guy and let us drive the car. And she goes, let me handle that. And they want to know if she's going to blow the guy or something. And she said, no, I'm going to insinuate that Lee's going to blow him. It's great. Yeah. She walks up to the guy and shows the Allure magazine with him in it and says she's a famous actress and they're filming a movie. And he wants to know why she dresses as a cheerleader. And he's like, and she says it's a cheerleader movie. And he wants to know if it's a porno film. And she pauses <laughs> to say no and then goes, yes. And we want to test drive the car and we'll leave Lee here for you to get more acquainted with. And she's passed out in a chair. Yeah. So they get ready to burn out and they go, bye, Lee, this is Jasper. And he's just mm-hmm, like standing over and she's, she doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Right. And we're on the road again. And the trio takes off and they stop on the road in front of a pumpkin patch. And Zoe and Kim get out and they put on like driving gloves or stunt gloves. And Kim takes Zoe's stunt driver jacket from her that's got her patches and shit on it. So she wants to wear it, which is kind of bullshit considering what's about to happen. Yeah. And Zoe takes off her belt and Kim won't give her hers because it's her cute shit. And somehow they talk Abernathy into giving the Prada belt, even though she doesn't know what the fuck's going on. And I just want to say real quick, the difference in tone between these two films, it is dark and raining for the whole time. And in this movie, it is beautiful, open plains and hills and suns out and bright. And it gives a completely different tone, especially with shit that's about to go down. Yeah. We then get another one of those like missing scene hard cuts to the car driving with the girls in it. And we can see Zoe tell Abernathy to check this out as she crawls out the window of the moving car onto the roof of it and straps the belts to the door jams. I think she kind of did that earlier, but she's holding on to it and kind of standing up like a ship's mast. We now know what the fuck ship's mast is because I had no clue before seeing this film. Same. And don't even know if it's a real thing. (laughs) But this shit is really crazy because it's really Zoe Bell. She is really sitting on a car, holding on a belt, and they are really driving 80 to 90 miles per hour the whole time. (laughs) This was not sped up because you can see him talking. It's full speed. I'm sure she has some sort of harness they digitally removed. Yeah. But she's on the fucking car. And sometimes she's using the belt. Sometimes she's using the windshield into the hood. Sometimes she's holding on to the hood scoops. It's some crazy fucking shit. And you can't get shots like this in a movie normally because you can't show the actor's face. True. But you can in this category because the actress is also the stunt actress. So, and, and what makes the movie even crazier is if you look, Kim is driving the car almost the whole time. And so is Kurt, including them slamming into each other with Zoe on the car. And that is not digitally done. They let them drive. If it was going to be super dangerous, they didn't get to do it. But I, mean, I think Kurt Russell's already real big into cars anyways. And I don't know Tracy Tom's background on it, but I mean, I guess with enough training, Matt Damon was a badass in the born identity, right? So driving the car and shit. Yes. Anyways, as they're hauling ass, having a good time with Zoe on the car, because I was getting a bit ahead of myself, we can see Mike watching the girls through a pair of binoculars on a ridge, and he gets in his charger and hauls ass towards them. He immediately starts ramming the rear end of their car and does it over and over again and ends up beside them and then like ramming the side of the car in each other, right? And like I said, Zoe's on the car holding on for dear life this whole time, and her character is clearly scared. I'm sure she was probably actually a little scared herself, but you see her like yelling and cussing at the guy to fuck off and kicking the car every now and then too, trying trying to, you know, just like, fuck you, you know, go away. Mike seems to be playing with his food in this case, very much different from the last time we saw him doing this, like totally different tone on it. And he's even taunting them. Ready to fly, bitch. 
but it's a badass chase scene. He wanted to make a car chase movie. He made a badass chase scene with them racing, ramming each other, spinning out of control, gaining control, getting back together several times. And eventually he manages to do a pit maneuver, sling on their car and slinging Zoe off the roof of the car, like over a fucking hill into God knows what. Right. <laughs> but Mike spins his car out of control a little bit, regains control and stops and starts to laugh maniacally. Like he had a great time. He even gets out of the car to tell the girls how much fun it was. And he's telling them by and waving as Kim shoots him in the arm and he hops in the car and pieces the fuck out. <laughs> and I guess he had a good time because Kim is supposed to be a stunt driver, right? So she was holding her own and he actually got to do like a real chase and all that and got to play with his food. And as far as he's concerned, he killed a girl, right? Yeah. Over and done. Abernathy and Kim sit in the car, sad, looking at where Zoe was slung and they're like, please get up, please get up or something like that. They think she's dead. And then she just pops up in the air, jumping and waving says, I'm okay. And it goes back down and they're like, Zoe, the fucking cat. And she walks up to the car and Zoe and Kim want to go get the guy. And they assume Abernathy will object. So they say the letter out right here. And she looks at him, says, let's go kill this fucker. Yeah. And they're like, whoa, okay. So then Zoe grabs a pipe from the side of the road, jumps in the car door, straddling it like a knight on her steed. And they take off. Third act part two now, okay? <laughs> we cut to Mike pulling over, and he is crying like a baby over his wound on his arm, and it even gets better as he chucks some bourbon and tries to pour that on the wound. Oh, why? Oh, no! Oh, no, no, no! No, God! Mike, get together, Mike. Once again, only Kurt could have done the scene or maybe Bruce. Bruce Campbell could have done this part, I feel like. Yeah. But he couldn't have been the crazy guy in the car. He tries to get his composure and take another swig of the bourbon. And then he's immediately rammed in the rear end by the girls. And so he gets out and gets some pipe hits on him through the window, right? Beating him. And he takes off and she hops back in the car and Kim chases him down. She's clearly a better driver than him now that she knows what the fuck's going on and just continues to ram him over and over again. And she makes this very sexual. <laughs> we just see a nice serene countryside drive as he's continually getting the shit knocked out of them until they are separated by a lake and a ridge and the girls go up on the ridge on this old dirt road and they just start basically praying and chanting together please don't end please don't end <laughs> as they're hoping the road reconnects and doesn't dead end and they kind of go out of sight from mike and he starts laughing like oh my god yes he thinks he got away right and as he goes around a curve, they come back in and ram the shit out of him, causing his car to flip and roll and wreck. And she was able to tap that ass one more time, just like she wanted. They run up to the car, yank him out the window, and they take turns punching and beating the shit out of him until Zoe does a roundhouse kick, knocking him down on the ground. And Abernathy finishes him off with an axe kick from her cowboy boot, crushing his fucking skull and killing him. Yeah. The end. I think it literally says the end and they do a high five and everything in the sunset. But the real issue here, though, is what ends up happening to their friend? Because they just left her ass with some scary country dude. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really want to think about that. And what's he going to say about the car when they bring back what's left of it? Yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions because it's a real abrupt ending, but it's still fucking fun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like I said, it is two completely tonally different movies 
put together. They could have been separate films with Stuntman Mike, but he got to make the, the movie he wanted. And this was Quentin's version of a slasher, which was interesting to see because we often talk about a director and say, I wonder what it'd be like if they did and you insert something they haven't done before. And usually it's a horror director and, and I'll say slasher, right? Because they haven't made a slasher yet. This was a... I want to say a non-horror director. He did From Dust Till Dawn, but that was with Robert Rodriguez, right? Yeah. But, I mean, he made a slasher and was not well-received box office bomb, like I said earlier. He wasn't a fan of the movie, and I've met a lot of people, especially online, that hate this movie, but I love this movie. And there was something that I was really thinking about as I watched interviews and behind the scenes with Quentin Tarantino, and that's that I noticed that he has a pattern of talking about how he hates digital and he loves shooting everything on film and he likes using real practical effects and he likes to lean on the old ways, kind of like he's the old guard. And you could see him at different directors tables saying things like this and people disagreeing with him, but he really felt like if you shot everything digital and edited it digitally and put it out in the theater, you were cheating the customers because they were basically paying for a seat to sit down and watch a DVD play, and they're not actually getting the full film theatrical experience. And you can see him visibly saddened when he says things like this. And if you think about it, that's kind of like Stuntman Mike's speech at the bar about stuntmen going the way of the buffalo and being replaced with things like CGI and whatnot. And honestly, I feel like this was a bit of self-reflection about Quentin Tarantino put into Stuntman Mike's character. You're not wrong. And I feel like this might be part of what really hurt him about this movie not doing well and him considering it one of his worst films. Yeah, fucking totally agree with that. Because that, that's something that he said in interviews. He's like, I'm going to do a grindhouse car chase movie. Like, nobody's going to expect that out of me, but that's something I've always had in me that I really want to do. And there are personal nods in the movie when you break it down like that. And for it to not be well received had to be crushing. But it is... Like other things we've covered on here, I think the whole Grindhouse double feature as a whole is finding its audience more and more. It may have just been done at the wrong time, but it doesn't matter. That's part of what's fun about these movies is people getting getting their foot in the door enough to make what they want. And Right, right. I go back and forth on whether or not I like this one more than Planet Terror because they're so different. So I think it's okay to like both of them equally, but it's, it's still a fun movie and there's fucking nothing else like it. Right. And... I definitely like this one more because, you know, part of what I categorize is a favorite movie to me. It, it can't just be good. I have to be able to watch it over and over again. And I've only seen Planet Terror three times. I don't have enough digits to count how many times I've seen this movie. <laughs> this is a movie, you know, especially for kids and have friends coming over to watch horror movies they'd never seen before. And they're like, I really want to see something different. I would always throw this in, especially if they're like Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill and Reservoir Dog fans and whatnot. And, and and I love to watch it, but you could tell that he, he put his heart and soul and had fun with it, just like Robert did in his film. But part of the fun thing about this Grindhouse movie was when it was released, you could see the movie separate or you could pay for the double feature. Yep. I 100% paid for the double feature <laughs> on the opening night. And with the double feature, Death Proof was second. And I don't know if that's because the studios thought it wasn't a good movie and it was going to bomb and maybe they want to put it at the end. But you started with Planet Terror. And then you got the old school intermission. Let's all go to the lobby. And it, it had a timer on it. If I remember right, don't quote me on that. But for some reason, we all knew we could go pee and get refills on drinks and the smokers could smoke and whatnot. Right. And you came in and you got 
the trailers because all Grindhouse movies had Grindhouse trailers in them that were just cheesy as hell. And like I said earlier, and like Josh is going to go into, Robert wrote a trailer first to make his movie. And Quentin and Robert wanted to make sure they had Grindhouse trailers in this flick. And their original thought was they were going to make all the trailers themselves. And at that point in time, that might have been like he was just coming up with the Planet Terror trailer. He might not even known his movie yet. I, I don't quote me on that, but I could see that being very likely. Yeah. But somewhere in there, I saw Robert say in an interview that Quentin decided to ask Edgar Wright if he would do a trailer. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and get Eli to do one. And Robert's like, that's a good idea. Let's just get other people to make trailers for this movie. And what ensued was fucking awesome. <laughs> you start out with a World War II movie, Werewolf Women of the SS, directed and written by Rob Zombie. And the directors actually had to write and direct their own trailer. It wasn't like Quentin and Robert made the trailer and stuck their name on there. So Rob Zombie made this trailer, yep. and it's got Bill Mosley in it. It's got Sherry Moon Zombie in it. Fucking Nick Cage is in it as Fu Manchu. <laughs> and it is just the most ridiculous idea about Hitler trying to make a army of super women werewolves to, to fight against the allies during World War II. And honestly, it's the most ridiculous one and probably the perfect one to start the trailers off with. Yeah, I actually read a thing on that that uh, Rob Zombie said that if he was allowed to sit and edit it, he had 45 minutes worth of that movie that you could watch. That That's how much Jesus. shit he shot for it. And then there was don't, 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 don't. <laughs> which was <laughs> by Edgar Wright, which is like the Omen slash Haunted House fucking trailer. It had a bit of everything in it, right? Yeah. Well, that's the funniest thing about it because it, it just keeps going on. If you're thinking of blah, 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 don't, 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 don't. <laughs> it's just, yes. You get sick of hearing the word don't and the name of the movie's don't. <laughs> And all of these trailers had famous people in it. Like Jason Isaacs is in this trailer, for example. Yep. It then goes to the one that I make the joke about the most. I wouldn't say it's like the most well done one, but if I had to pick which one was actually the best parody of that era Grindhouse movie, it would be Thanksgiving done by Eli Roth. Yes. And it's because I had plenty of shitty slasher movies on VHS that, that played out like this. But it's the town of Plymouth, Massachusetts. And... On Thanksgiving, there's a slasher that comes out, and it's got so many great one-liners like, this year, there will be no leftovers, <laughs> and white meat, dark meat, all will be carved. And it's just a slasher walking around in a pilgrim outfit, like decapitating and murdering people, and some very grotesque, fucked up sexual things with a turkey. And on Thanksgiving, to my horror buddies, like Josh and his wife, Ginger, I usually like to send a picture of the turkey with the knife stabbed in it before it gets extra fucked up, but <laughs> it was a funny Eli Roth slasher trailer. Yep. Of course, you got the machete fucking trailer <laughs> which supposedly machete kills in space is really going to happen but anyways oh. and it's machete you know it's the <laughs> it's so stereotypical it's the handyman mexican that'll do any job for a buck including murder and uh <laughs> even if it's you know government <laughs> but he's a goddamn federale he's a goddamn fe federale and they don't fuck with the wrong mexican and there's all <laughs> kinds of people that show up in the fucking trailer and cheech marin shots in the trailer were actually shot like right before the movies were released like they he was okay. he was never there at the same time they shot him later but it was hilarious because of why that was shot and what ended up happening with it becoming a real movie yeah because you even have Jeff Fahey in it, right? And you have a lot of yeah. people that show up in, in that era of Robert Rodriguez's career. He has a whole nother era that I'll probably mention here in a bit. <laughs> and then the final trailer that Josh was actually telling me earlier was not originally in 
the trailers in the theater, which I don't remember because it was so long ago, but they added after the fact was Hobo with a Shotgun made by Jason Eisner, who made like what VHS and stuff like that. Yeah. He, he made some horror movies, but I guess Robert Rodriguez had an Austin, Texas grindhouse trailer contest. And this came from that. Oh, one. But that also okay. got turned into a real movie. Yep. Uh, starring Ruger Hauer, right? Yep. It's a good fucking movie too. So I actually have not seen Machete or Hobo with a Shotgun. I think that would be fun for us to, uh, one of the times where we're hanging out, grindhouse those together, maybe back to back. Uh, we're going to have to, and we're going to have to watch Machete Kills as well, because the sequel, because I've seen that too. <laughs> I didn't even know there was a sequel. Yeah, there's Machete, Machete Kills, which is why I make fun of Halloween Kills. And then I don't remember, I think the end of Machete Kills has the mock trailer for Machete in Space. Okay. And that's what supposedly is really going to happen now. <laughs> I don't know. It's just crazy. And it's cool because say what you want about some of these directors and, and we have before, but they really were all the up and coming horror talent at the time this movie was made. And they all got to make a trailer. They got to make it in their own way with the only rule of it having to be a cheesy schlock looking grindhouse film. And um, it was a really fun part. And you can actually go to YouTube and type grindhouse trailers. It'll show the actual trailer for death proof and planet terror and then go into the goofy ones. And they're included on the sets. Like I have the steel box DVD set of these films because I, I was a huge fan. But like I said, my movie technically played second, but I just wanted to do it first because it was chronological. And, and that film is what brought us to, to make this episode. But the second half of Grindhouse was 2007's Planet Terror. So this one was written and directed by Robert Rodriguez. We got to go back to El Mariachi, Desperado. From Dust Till Dawn, fucking four rooms, at least one segment. Right. Then he turns off into the Spy Kids guy and the Shark Boy and Lava Girl and all that. Like, oh, yeah. Like he, oh, yeah. he has run the gamut and on into, you know, Sin City, Machete, Machete Kills. Like the guy just does what he wants to do. He's got his own fucking studio. He's got his own TV network. Yep. He's got his own effects house because both of these movies are Troublemaker Studios and shot primarily in Austin, yeah. Texas. And the guy, he's a good example of like a lot of the guys we've talked about on here of just going, I've got this small little thing. I'm going to try to do my way and never give up. And he's blown it up into his own thing that he does what he wants to. He doesn't need studio meddling he just needs distribution deals and he can make shit right his adult film career seems to have mostly staggered he makes so many kids movies now but my kids they fucking love all of his movies <laughs> and it blows my mind when i go back and watch things like this and i'm like he just made a movie for netflix that came on a christmas day starring pedro pascal called they can be heroes and it's a kid superhero movie and it has that cheesy cgi stuff in it that he does in his kid movies it even has shark boy and lava girl in it my kids fucking love that movie like they're huge fans of his and it's just insane that he had kids and he was like you know what i'm gonna start making kids movies like he still has stuff on the el rey network like the from dust till dawn show but it really goes to just show his desire for his craft because I bought his book a while back. I've been meaning to get it called rebel without a crew. And it's about how he took like eight grand in himself and made El Mariachi. Yeah. And the book covers almost no technical filmmaking aspects. It's just how as a person, how he did it. And the guy was a fucking genius. I mean, he was playing something from one VCR to another to do his editing. And hitting recording and eventually he had a daisy chain like five VCRs. <laughs> and he said, you know what? He said, you know what that taught me? How to film movies right the first time where you don't have to edit much. 
which makes me fucking cheap to make a movie. And, and, and I don't know, the guy's like a, just a fucking genius in his own right, but it's amazing to see the shit he started with. And now he makes cheesy kid movies for his movies. Primarily. It's just insane. And you brought up another good point. He edits most of his shit too. <laughs> we always love the directors that edit, don't we? Yeah. Um, we've also got Rose McGowan as uh, cherry darling who we've covered what she's been in um in the previous film we've got freddie rodriguez as ray he's been in a lot of tv including four episodes of yep. scrubs i think that must be what i recognize him from <laughs> we've got josh brolin as bill or william of course his first film was the fucking goonies and yep that's what i'm always gonna think of and mimic and no country for old men and crap ton of other stuff because he is a, a legitimate star that's really cool that he's in this Right. And now he's Thanos and Cable in the Marvel yes. movies. And there was a really funny story I saw with this. Apparently, he wanted to be in, in No Country for Old Men, and the Coen brothers didn't want him and couldn't see him for the role. So while they were making this, he asked Robert Rodriguez to shoot him doing uh, a scene of dialogue that he was supposed to have with the with the with his wife in No Country for Old Men. And Marley Shelton set in as the wife. Yep. And Robert directed him and filmed him, and that's how he got the job for No Country and Old Men. So that's really cool that that came out of this. Yep. And uh, moving us right into Marley Shelton as Dakota, Bill's wife. And You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think of her from Scream 4 and Sin City. But once again, been in a bunch of other stuff and a lot of TV. We've got Jeff Fahey as JT. Yes. He was in Lawnmower Man, Dark Man 3, Lost. He's He does a bunch of, I don't want to say smaller, but... Smaller production stuff as far as he's been in a crap ton of movies, and he's real good. Fantastic actor. Though. Yeah. We've got Michael Bean, fucking Kyle Reese himself as Sheriff Hayes. What year is this? <laughs> and of course, to those that don't know why I'm saying Kyle Reese, because that's his character in The Terminator, he was in Aliens. He was in The Abyss. Let's not forget Cherry Falls, though. <laughs> oh, we try, though. Um. Got uh, Bruce Willis as Lieutenant Muldoon, which a funny story about Bruce Willis coming into the film. So Rodriguez actually wrote the part for a higher caliber actor was what he said. And 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 he shouldn't go for it because it's such a small part, but that's what he's going to try to do. Got something set up. It fell apart. And he was sitting there and he's like, well, I can't call Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is too big of an actor. But after Sin City, he did say, you know, if you're working on something, just give me a call. I'll come by. Fuck it. I'm going to ask Bruce Willis if he wants the small part. He's like, yeah, I told you I'd come by. <laughs> and what, the first day he was on set, because he was only on set for like two days. Um, Quentin Tarantino was there and he's like, oh, hi, Bruce. Did you come to hang out and watch us make a movie? He's like, no, I'm in the movie. <laughs> right. Because he'd already done Pulp Fiction and stuff, right? Yeah. And there's an even funnier Grindhouse tie in there. A shtick of Grindhouse films is they would get a very famous actor to be in the Grindhouse movie and pay them very minimal amount of money because they would only have to shoot for one day. Yep. Right. And they would shoot with stand-ins and no scenes with actual people in the movie. And then just plaster their name and picture all over the posters and get people there. And in the trailer. Yes. And Bruce Willis was on the trailer and on the fucking poster, his name everywhere. And they actually had him come in and shoot the scenes with stand-ins and not with the real people on purpose just to go with the fucking shtick. And that's why Grindhouse is fucking awesome. Yeah. Anytime in this movie when you see his character at a distance with the gas mask on, that's not Bruce Willis. 
<laughs> We've got Naveen Andrews as Abby, who the only thing of notoriety he's from is Lost, which his character is just fun. And he's like, do you want me to just yeah. do the British? And uh, he's like, try it with the British. Let's see how it works when he's talking about collecting balls. And it worked. So they just stuck with it. Tom Savini has a small part as Tolo, one of the cops, which I don't think we need to go into everything that man's done because we already have. Oh, you, you do. You do. <laughs> um. Michael Parks as Earl McGraw reprising his role from From Dust Till Dawn, which is just crazy and fun. And he has a fun part in the movie. And I believe he passed away in like 2017, which is kind of a downer to end this on. But uh, special effects, like you mentioned before, K&B. And I put in my notes kind of because I'm troubled by this. Both films, the opening credits say special makeup effects by Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger. But the Post credits say K and B. Why didn't they just credit the whole studio? Maybe it was during the split up or whatever. Ah, I didn't think about it that way. I also want to point out that I can't think of his character's name. It's the deputy. Deputy Carlos is Carlos from El Mariachi. Okay. <laughs> yeah, which is Robert Rodriguez's original claim to fame that became Desperado. So he's in the film as well. Yep. A little bit more behind the scenes before we jump into this. Robert Rodriguez fucking loves Carpenter flicks. And I don't mean Halloween. Yes. I mean, he loves Halloween too, but he like loves all Carpenter flicks and all Carpenter music. He uh, temp scored uh, this movie with all John Carpenter music and yep. wanted to use some of it and couldn't afford it. But there's a few stingers and a few small pieces um, that actually he did license and keep in the movie. I read that he actually originally had John Carpenter signed on to score it, but for undisclosed reasons, he ended up scoring it himself. Money. But he would play soundtracks for from the other films, like in between scenes to get everybody in the mood. Yep. As we touched on, the Machete trailer was just a trailer. It was done to test how they wanted to make things actually work in Planet Terror. And if we went this over the top, if we did this to make it look like old worn out film, like would this really work? And that was kind of the birth of the whole thing as far as the look goes. But he actually started writing this in the late 90s and got 30 pages in and was working on The Faculty. That's another movie he, he yep. was involved in that I didn't bring up. And he was talking to that cast and he's like, I'm going to do this grindhouse zombie movie and because zombies are dead and nobody's doing anything with zombies, they got to come back and they're going to come back big and right. we're going to make this movie. And he got 30 pages in and got stuck. Then when the zombie revival happened, he's like, see guys, see, maybe I should revisit this now. <laughs> Yeah, he was, um, he, he, I don't remember if he had written the 30 pages yet and it had just been sitting on a shelf or if he was doing it while he was making the faculty, but he said he sat down with, uh, it was Josh Hartnett and I can't remember the other guy. I think it was Elijah Wood, right? Yes. He's in the faculty. Yes. Josh Hartnett and Elijah Wood. Yeah. And he's like, zombie movies are going to make a comeback. I got this idea. And like you said, he got stuck and didn't finish it, but boy, was he right. Yep. He was dead. Right. We got to say there are over 450 visual effects shots in this movie. Like tons Jesus. of them and watching the behind the scenes of how much stuff was done practical and how much stuff was done composited but not on green screen where they just do double exposure like when tolo gets thrown into the squad car and the side of the squad car crushes in they shot the car with the rig that made the car crunch didn't move the camera put uh put tom savini on a rig and threw his ass at the car and shot that too and then just overlaid him there's a lot of that in this movie that you don't even notice that that's what was going on until some of the behind the scenes shit shows it. And uh, it's really cool that they did that. They didn't digital the hell out of it, but they digitally helped it like a motherfucker. Right. Here's the craziest one. And I just heard this. 
I was listening to an interview with Fat Mike yesterday. Apparently, Josh Brolin is a huge punk rock fan and was a founding member of Rich Kids on LSD before they actually became Rich Kids on LSD. I think I actually knew this to some extent. Like, I knew he was big in a punk. And I, I think I remember hearing that story, but like you say that, that's just kind of fucking crazy. Makes him even cooler. Yeah. Josh Brolin, founding member of RKL. What the fuck? <laughs> so with all that said, let's dive into this shit. So we open with Cherry Darling doing a go-go dance. And the music, of course, is written by uh, Robert Rodriguez. And I want to say the first half of the main riff that's in her theme that goes throughout the movie, it's which is note for note the first half of Dewey's theme in Scream. And it pisses me off. Oh, okay. But it is. It's note for note. Anyways. I mean, he's always been a big music guy. His music appears in a lot of his films. And there's a really cute video you can find online. He directed one of the most badass episodes of The Mandalorian this season. Oh, really? And the little Grogu baby Yoda that everybody thinks is so cute. It's not CGI. It's a $5 million animatronic puppet that yeah. can move independently and do shit. And there's a video you can find on YouTube because he always has his acoustic guitar like on set. And he'll play his guitar in between takes. And he's sitting on a rock with Grogu next to him. And he's playing guitar and Grogu's dancing to him playing guitar. It's fucking <laughs> hilarious. Being a fan of, of Star Wars and, and Rodriguez, it was really cool to see it come together. But yeah, like he, he does a lot of his own guitar and music and shit. So nice. So after Cherry's dance, we cut to backstage and we're introduced to Robert's realtor as he sees two of the dancer girls making out. God damn it, girls. You're going to do that shit? Do it on stage. And that really is Robert Rodriguez's realtor. Skip is played. He never acted. He's his realtor. There's going to be more yep. of this. And, exactly. Uh, Cherry's crying because she was crying on stage and she's not happy with her, her position in life right now. And uh, he tells her, hey, it's go, go, not cry, cry. <laughs> and she fucking quits. <laughs> And uh, she's walking home in the dark and all these military trucks come by and they run her ass literally off the road, even though she's walking and she falls in some garbage cans and shit and cuts her leg open. We quickly see where the trucks are going and we're at this army base and we meet Abby and he's already like starting a conversation with this guy. You're just dropped into this. I'm going to bring this up because that's very grindhousey in this movie. There are violent cuts into shit that's already going on. So I'm going to do my best to keep it all going. He definitely did it more than Quentin. Yeah. But the conversation they're in is uh, Rami telling Abby all three escaped. And another guy walks up to Abby with a jar of balls. I also want your balls. And so Abby's crew grabs Rami and chops off his balls while we see these dudes with gas masks watching. And one of them walks up and we find out quickly that it's Lieutenant Muldoon. And he asks, where's the shit? <laughs> so Bruce Willis. <laughs> I just love that it's only called the shit yeah. from here on out. <laughs> And he tells Abby is like, the deal's no good because you held out on me. Now he wants all of it. <laughs> like you just dropped right into the shit. Like, what the fuck are they talking about? <laughs> a firefight breaks out. There was a firefight! And uh, it, it claims several of the troops. And it also claims Abby's Jaro balls in the process. And Abby ends up pinned down in his own balls. <laughs> and Muldoon comes up. And, Jesus. and he's like, looks like I got you by the balls. Because <laughs> he's by the ball. And this movie is very much more grindhouse than the previous one. Oh yes it is. And I'm just thinking about all the kids movies this guy makes <laughs> that my children watch and this fucking ball scene like just a running gag throughout the movie. Oh. 
And of course, Muldoon again asks, where's the shit? And Abby goes, it's everywhere. And he shoots this green thing that's been sitting next to everybody through this whole scene. And it starts spraying out this green fog. And immediately people go walking through it and their fucking faces start melting off. But it doesn't seem to be affecting the troops with the gas masks, even if they don't have the gas masks on. Now. Or Abby. Or Abby. And it looked very much like Return of the Living Dead. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, what you will notice in this scene, though, because Bruce Willis has his mask off for so long while he's talking that he gets little boils bubbling on his face. But we'll get more into that later. So in all this commotion of the Return of the Living Dead fucking fog and uh, (laughs) and balls flying, Abby ends up stealing a Hummer and he takes off. And we kind of follow him driving, which leads us to Fergie on the side of the road pissing herself. No, wait, that's what happened to her on stage. (laughs) Truth. And uh, hey, we've all been that drunk. We just weren't cool enough to be on stage when it happened. (laughs) Am I speaking for myself? Jesus. (laughs) The thing people forget is that she was actually acting before the Black Eyed Peas. I didn't know that. Yeah. So she's one of those many talents. I'm just making a joke about her because I get to make a pee joke. But uh, Fergie is uh, Tammy and she's actually broke down by the bone shack which is a barbecue shop and to top off her radiator because her car's overheating and JT helps her out while Cherry walks up and goes heading into the bone shack. And that bone shack is actually Jasper's little farm shed thing where they picked up the car in the other movie. Aha. So then we quickly cut to the doctor couple, Bill and Dakota waking up for the night shift and Dakota goes and gets on the phone with the babysitter and she's telling them that somebody's going to be by at 10 to pick up her son and there's a suitcase hidden under his bed, like trying to do stuff on the DL, it seems. And at the same time, she's texting someone, hurry baby, I think he knows. And while all this is going on, Tony, which is Rebel Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez's son, sitting there at the counter playing with some toys and he's got one eating the head of the other one. I'm going to eat your brains and gain your knowledge. Robert Rodriguez put this in the movie because he walked in on his son playing and literally saying that while he had one toy eating the head of the other. <laughs> that I didn't know. What I what I did see was he was not originally planning on putting his son Rebel into this film, but because of a later scene in the film, he did not want to do that to someone else's child. And that scene you're referring to is one of the first things he wrote for this film. More on that later. <laughs> so back over the bone shack, we meet Ray. Because he comes in and he asks for a pack of cigarettes and they're red apples, just like in Quentin Tarantino movies. I forgot to say that. That's what Stuntman Mike was smoking the whole time too, right? Oh, really? Yeah. No shit. So he spots Cherry and they sit down and start talking and we quickly realize that they had some kind of history and it didn't end well. That's my jacket. I looked for it for two weeks. You're going to hear that line a few times in this film. (laughs) Yep. And it's so dumb. And you're like, this is stupid. And then the payoff is like, oh, this guy's awesome. (laughs) But uh, we also learned that Cherry's new plan now that she's not a go-go dancer anymore. And that's not a stripper. That's a go-go dancer. (laughs) They make that very clear in this film. Is that she's going to be a stand-up comedian. (laughs) As Ray goes to leave, Cherry ends up hitching a ride with him. I do want to point out that Ray says, but why? You're not that funny. (laughs) It's just like like a big fuck. I know, but people tell me that I'm funny. (laughs) So we jump right back over to the hospital and this dude, Joe comes in and I forget the actor's name. He's been in a bunch of stuff as, as smaller parts. And uh, he comes right up to Bill, and it's pretty obvious that he's got to be pretty good friends with Bill because he looks over at Dakota behind him, his wife, and he's like, how's the wife? She looks like she could suck the bend out of a river. (laughs) 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 And uh, he's got this nasty bite on his arm. 
And while he's being examined, there's this other doctor in the background who's showing all these nasty pictures of overseas STDs. That's Robert Rodriguez's actual doctor. And all those pictures are real. <laughs> and that's the guy from uh, Tromeo and Juliet that I was talking about earlier. Oh, the one with the bite on his arm? Yeah, he's the guy with the Italian Vogue. Okay. But Robert thought it would be funny because his doctor would love to tell all these stories about fucked up diseases and shit. And like the story about the eyeballs is real and all that. And he's like, I'm putting you in my movie. Just be you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's cool. But um, upon further examination, they see that Joe's got these nasty ass pustules all over his tongue. And Bill actually pops one and it squirts him in the face. But it's okay. He's wearing glasses. If only that worked for COVID. (laughs) (laughs) So. Obviously a little grossed out, Bill pages his wife because he's like, get my wife in here. We cut over to Dakota and she's all loaded up with syringes. She's got them strapped to her thigh and she's got a little pocket protector with three of them in there too. And as she goes to walk away, you can quickly see her to-do list. And it says cereal for Tony, crickets for Tony's pets and kill Bill. (laughs) (laughs) And I do want to point out that Dakota, aka Dr. Block, was the doctor I was referencing at the end of Death Proof. Well, the first half of Death Proof. Yes, because this is the same hospital. She comes in and she explains the three needles in her pocket. These are my friends. My yellow friend. It's just to take the sting. Ah. My blue friend, you'll barely feel. That means my yellow friend is already taking effect. See how fast my friends work? And after my red-headed friend... This is another story that a friend of Rodriguez's told about an anesthesiologist that came in and actually said exactly what she said. He's like, this is a great story and wrote it down and put it in a movie. I love stories like that where you're like, how did they come up with this shit? And it's like, somebody fucking told me. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, now Joe's passed the fuck out. The worst incident of the film, as far as making it, happened in this scene. They had real needles for close-up shots and then retractable needles for the going in the arm shot. On the very first take of the going in the arm shot, they forgot to swap out the needles. And she actually stabbed dude in the arm with all three needles, went through the whole spiel for a wide shot of it, and then realized that after it was over that she had really just stabbed him in the arm three times. And he just went with it. (laughs) What did she inject in him? I know, right? COVID. This is where COVID really came from. No, just playing. Jesus. I know, right? Anyways, back over to Tammy, who has now broke down again from her car overheating. She quickly, as she goes to get out of the car, we hear over the radio a quick dedication to Jungle Julia. So this tells you right now that this is definitely the movie that takes place timeline-wise after Death Proof. And certain people still being alive. Yeah, yeah, that too. So she goes walking down the road in the middle, middle of the night, all dark as shit with her busted ass flashlight. And uh, she's very quickly picked off by some zombies. And as she's being drugged off the road, oh, by the way, check it out. This is what it takes to get Josh to talk about a zombie flick right now. <laughs> and so as she's being drugged off the street, we see Ray and Sherry driving by in his big ass wrecker truck. It's just another neat thing where it's like this is going on and we pan over to move the story along versus abrupt cuts to what's going on. Meanwhile, uh, it's a weird yeah. mix, but it works because it's a grindhouse flick. That's probably the muscle memory in Robert Rodriguez to film like he doesn't have to edit it because he used to do it with the VCR, right? <laughs> there you go. Shoot that shit right the first time. 
So as they're driving by, um, Ray tells Cherry it's just roadkill. And he goes on this thing about people eating venison has gone up 30% because of so much roadkill and all this shit. <laughs> and she's like, what? And he's like, well, it's because deer. If you see a deer, the last thing you want to do is swerve because you're probably going to kill yourself. The best thing to do is just pick it off. And uh, as soon as he finishes saying that, he swerves to miss a zombie. <laughs> and the truck goes fucking tumbling. I thought you said if you saw a deer, you shouldn't. Swerve. They only had the one tow truck for the movie. The truck sliding and flipping over, all of that is a 100% CGI. Oh, okay. Yep. And then they took the actual truck, turned it upside down, and set it down on the ground for following shots of the truck upside down. So the truck's wrecked, but they're alive. Everything's cool. And then zombies bust in and rip Cherry out of the truck. And so Ray, you know, does an elbow into the back of the truck and gets his fucking El Mariachi rig. <laughs> It's just this thing that opens up full of guns and he grabs a rifle and he goes taking off. I was wondering where you were getting at with that because I didn't remember there being a, a guitar case with weapons. <laughs> and uh, he makes it to the zombies that are, they're up on cherry. You can't really tell what they're doing yet. You're about to find out though. And he picks them off. Cherry's legs really fucked up. She's soon going to be known as Peggy, but we'll get there. Of course, Ray takes her to the hospital, and as soon as they walk into the hospital, the popos roll in, three deep. And we got Sheriff Haig and the deputies, Tolo and Carlos. And Carlos is Carlos, and Tolo is Tom Savini. And uh, Haig snatches Ray, and he's like, why do you have a rifle? You know, I stuck my neck out for you, and after everything you've done, you shouldn't even be hunting. Because he makes a joke about, I was like, oh, I was, I was going after some deer. And he's like, you can't even hunt. I'm like, really? I can't even hunt? Like, what the fuck happened in the past, and why did this cop stick his neck out for him? Foreshadowing. Kind of. It keeps cutting back to Ray's POV and like every person being brought into the hospital is at a different level of facial pustule grossification. <laughs> and he's like, Jesus, can we take this conversation elsewhere? And Haig is like, yeah, and cuffs his ass. So more bodies start rolling in. And I think it's one of the paramedics is like, we got three more and we're back to Bill and seeing <laughs> Bill's night going. And uh, <laughs> Bill pulls back a sheet and he loses his calmness. Now, Ever since Bill got to work, he's had a glass thermometer in his mouth and he's like constantly checking his temperature and the paramedics making a joke. And he's like, you need to be careful with that thing, man. You might end up cutting yourself. He's like, that's how I know I'm calm because <laughs> he keeps checking yeah. the fucking thermometer. What happens if you break it? That's how I know I lost my calm. Yes. A very Josh Brolin line. Yes. So whatever he saw under this sheet really fucked with them because it breaks, falls out of his mouth. And the only thing he says is somebody get my wife. <laughs> <laughs> So, meanwhile, back at the Bone Shack, some unwelcome customers begin to arrive. More on this later. You just need to know this is happening. Also, meanwhile, <laughs> <laughs> Cherry wakes up in the hospital, and she sees that she's a few pounds lighter. Also, also, meanwhile, over at the police station, because <laughs> this is all <laughs> just quick cuts. Haig takes a call from JT telling him about his unwelcome non-customers, but most of the call is spent arguing about JT's recipe and the rent for the bone shack. We also learn that they're brothers. More on all of this later. <laughs> <laughs> that goddamn landlord raising the rent. <laughs> exactly. Back over to the hospital. <laughs> we get to see what set Bill off, and he shows Dakota brainless Tammy. And he snags Tammy's phone out of her corpse's pocket and he pulls Dakota off into this room and he's confronting her. He's like, when did you know she was back in town? Like, oh, shit. Like, this is. Oh, 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 anyways, it's all coming together now. And uh, he tells Dakota to give him her, 
give him her phone and she's clutching it in, his, in her hand and she's like no and he goes all right let's let's see how fast your friends work and he pulls one of the needles out of her chest and he's like you know talking down to her and spitting the caps in her face and he's while he's going he's like how long did you and he's just stabbing the shit out of her hands with the first yes. needle <laughs> it is so fucked up i hate needles <laughs> and he's just sitting there waiting to see how long before she goes limp and when she does the phone falls into his hand and the music's like doo <laughs> like it's so playful but it's great and he looks at both of the fucking phones and and sees the message about hurry baby i think he knows something so apparently she's been trifling with some girl from the past which was tammy and there was a setup for tonight for her to come and get the boy and they were going to make their break away from bill and if you look at dakota's to-do list she was going to go so far as to actually kill bill so he locks her ass in the closet I thought she already came out of the closet, though. Oh, look at you. (laughs) And I fucked up a little bit. He's about to stab her with a red needle when the paramedic comes in and says, hey, you're going to want to see this. And that's when he locks her in a closet and then goes to see. And uh, I don't think we see yet that the bodies are now missing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we get to see that the bodies are missing. They just don't investigate yet. So back to the station. (laughs) What's funny is this movie jumps around so much, but the farther you get into it, the less it jumps around. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So at the police station, (laughs) it's one of the best scenes of the whole fucking movie. (laughs) Tolo comes running in bitching about a perp that just bit his finger. (laughs) And Haig is like, would you quit bitching so much? He's like, I'm not being overdramatic here. He bit my fucking finger off and he's missing his finger (laughs) and it's his ring finger. He's like, you got to go out there because I don't need to be the one to arrest this guy. I'm going to fucking kill him. (laughs) (laughs) And and I don't know how much we've seen of it yet, but he is a fucking terrible shot. He's in stormtrooper territory. Yeah, yeah, we're fixing to get in. (laughs) We're definitely fixing it into that. So all three cops go out to the car and they've got Ray there because they're questioning him. So Ray's standing in the doorway looking at all the locked up guns while this is going on. And all three of the cops go to the squad car and they notice that the side windows busted out. And Carlos is like, well, I found your ring. And he's holding the ring out to Tolo and Tolo's like slowly walking up to him, reaching out to get his ring. And then all of a sudden, Greg Nicotero pops up and bites Carlos's arm off. Oh, shit. Was that Greg? I'm not bullshitting you. That particular zombie was Greg Nicotero. He's random zombies and walking dead. So this was the original roots of that. There you go. So, of course, this sets off a whole horde of zombies showing up and all hell breaks loose. I mean, all hell breaks loose. That's the easiest way for me to say this because it's a fucking grindhouse movie. Shit's exploding. When when people get <laughs> shot in this movie or when zombies get shot in this movie, they explode. They may only be pieces of them that explode. It may be half of them that explodes. When they get hit by trucks, all of them explode. But it is just gallons and gallons of gore every time something like this happens. And it's yeah. fucking great. And these zombies, they make me think of, I only played it once, but I think it's Resident Evil 4. Is that the one where you're trying to go get like the uh, president's daughter yes. out of whatever country? Yep. And, and they're like plant people, zombies with the postules. It very much makes me think of that. Yeah. It's a cross between that and Toxic Avenger. <laughs> but through all this commotion there's cars exploding ray steals a gun and he's shooting people too even though his hands and legs are still chained he's a badass and uh tolo grabs his ring and he's trying to put it where his finger used to be yeah talk about a phantom limb yes and after everything calms down i don't remember which cop it is goes to investigate one of the bodies and like don't touch him he's infected 
That's so good. It's so bad. It's good. And he's like, with what? And he's like, everything. <laughs> Haig then notices the gun and takes it away from Ray. And then Ray goes to hop in his truck and Haig's like, where do you think you're going? And he's like, I'm going to go get Cherry. And Haig goes, we're going to take my car. And then it explodes behind him. <laughs> and then Haig's like, I'm going to ride with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so they go driving to the fucking hospital. Meanwhile, things are going downhill really fast at the hospital. So when we last saw Joe, he was being prepped to have his arm amputated because of the bite. And uh, <laughs> there's a there's another guy with the electric bone saw that even asked Bill. He's like, you want to come watch? And he's like, no, no, I'll, I'll see it later. So <laughs> when we cut back later. <laughs> We see Bill go to go in that room and they got plastic sheeting over the door and it's covered in blood and Bill like opens it up to look in and Joe's got the bone saw and he's got the other doctor there and he's like cutting his chest open with it until he sees Bill and he's like, I'm going to go after you now. And Bill backs up to the other side of the hallway and Joe's coming at him with the bone saw and he gets all the way up to him enough to start cutting through his glasses and then the bone saw comes unplugged. (laughs) But now his cut glasses fall off. So zombie Joe busts one of the pustules that's now all over his face and wipes it all down Bill's face. So Bill is proper fucked. Quick cut to Earl, which he's going to make more sense in the movie here in a minute. But anyways, he's actually introduced earlier in the director's cut, but I'm not doing all that. He gets a phone call from Haig, basically calling his ass out of retirement to come help because shit's going down. And we see that he's actually sitting there feeding his cancer consumed wife. Who farts like yeah. a pack mule, by the way. That was an ad-libbed line by Michael Parks. And he's a, a very famous old school actor as well. Yes. In his own right. And he has done from the zaniest to the seri- most serious. He is and everything in between. Uh, the guy's fucking crazy good. I hate to say this because his credits is like 144 movies, but Red State, he's the crazy preacher in Red State. I haven't seen Red State. Oh, dude. it's His character's so good in that movie. And his character, his character is good in Tusk. Tusk is just a bad movie. I hadn't seen that movie either. <laughs> Aren't those both Kevin Smith flicks? Yes. <laughs> okay. One day we're going to end up covering Tusk. It's it's just going to happen. <laughs> I'll take that bullet if you want me to. Um. Anyways. <laughs> so in the midst of all this, his wife fucking zombies out. And Earl presumably takes her out because he stands up, draws. We hear a crash, actually, because it immediately cuts to Dakota flying out of a second story window. And as a car flies by, she lands in a pile of trash. This right here is another good example of Rodriguez doing shit in camera. So there's a shot of a stunt person jumping out of the window. So they do that shot, jumping into the bag. Then they built this little wooden rig for Marley to jump just a couple feet down. And then they had a car drive by. So you wouldn't see the wooden thing and then just cut to Marley on the ground. So it's all composited shots, but they're real. And when it all comes together, it just works. So what's supposed to have happened here is that she landed in so much bio waste that she was going to have a bunch of needles hanging off of her after this. (laughs) But they they kind of scrubbed that. That's why she has the one random needle in her shoulder is not from her husband. It's supposed to be from when she fell in the trash. I didn't know that until it was fucking said on the commentary. I feel like in the director's cut, she might have more needles in her i'm gonna be honest on this one i only had director's cuts or unrated versions because it was quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez so i didn't want fucking filtered versions of them so i don't actually own the standard versions of these you know what blows my mind 
all the dick stuff and all the disease pictures are in the R-rated version. Probably because they're like medical photos, so you can get away with it. There's weird like bylaws. That's why. But that's the National nasty Geographic shit in the movie. Can show some of the shit they can do. I know, I know, and he makes films for my children. <laughs> but at any rate, Dakota's having a very difficult time getting in her car because <laughs> she's yeah she can't use her wrists. <laughs> I fucking love all the scenes where she can't use her fucking hands. <laughs> She actually snaps her wrist here, doesn't she? Yeah, because she gets her. She has her hand shoved in the handle, and she's using her her foot to try to push the button because it's like a like a late seventies, early eighties car with the big button you got to push. And she slips and falls and snaps her wrist. But with the help of her watch, after busting the clasp open on it and breaking a tooth in the process, and gets the keys in by her, with her mouth and gets the the watch on the shifter, she drives away, smacking into like three or four cars on her way away out of the parking lot. Which makes the camera move over to where we need to see Ray come driving in in his wrecker. <laughs> yeah. All hell's breaking loose in the hospital now. There's like shit exploding, shit's on fire, people are running around everywhere, there's zombies everywhere. And uh, <laughs> Hague still won't give Ray a gun. Right. <laughs> he grabs two knives out of the glove box and he heads in to save Cherry. So I'm going to go ahead and put this here because while all this hell's breaking loose, of course, Tolo's there as well. <laughs> and Tolo looks scared as shit. He's just kind of spinning around like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I got to nut up and do something. So he shoots somebody and it's a patient. <laughs> the first time he lands a shot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but once Ray's inside, he fucking puts on exam gloves and fucks up some zombies on his way to Cherry. And he's like doing fucking ninja flips and fucking just just full on badass shit all the way to a room. And uh, it's easy to find a room because it's the one with the boot. <laughs> As Ray's heading down the hall fucking shit up, you'll see the paramedic from earlier getting munched on by a couple of zombies. One of them being Zoe Bell, who was a stunt woman oh. on this movie. So he makes it into Cherry's room and Cherry's crying about how she's never going to be a stand up comedian because she has no leg. I have no leg. I have no leg. Some of the best jokes are about cripples. Let's go. So he breaks off a table leg and gives her a peg leg and they take off. Right now, I'll go ahead and bring up how they did the leg. So they actually had her wear a cast. So she would be yep. forced to keep her leg straight for how she was going to her body was going to need to move. And for a lot of it, they just painted it green so they could digitally remove it. Um, but in some stuff, they just had her actually do stuff and digitally removed it. And there's a lot of really good digital work in this movie, especially for yeah. how much this is on film. So anyways, that's out of the way. Moving on. So they hop in the truck and uh, Cherry gets her leg stuck in the door and she's sitting there slamming the door on it over and over again. Ray's like, it's just wood. And Cherry's like, it's splintering. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that shit's great. But uh, they're heading on to JT's. So let's see what's going on at JT's. Nope. We've got to. Meanwhile, <laughs> Dakota has made it home and we meet the crazy babysitter twins. And the twins are actually Robert Rodriguez's nieces. I didn't know that. Yeah. That makes a joke that Quentin made even worse. <laughs> I was watching an interview. He's saying how we had to have a hot girl in the movie because it's a grindhouse flick. So he has Rose McGowan and she's go-go dancing. Right. And then he said, well, I had to add a second hot chick. So I put Fergie in and then he starts talking about Mary Shelton and, and he's going on and on about all this. And he goes, well, I guess I had a few. And he's like, a few, you had more than that. You had the crazy babysitter twins. You had that. And he just goes through the list. He's like, you had six hot chicks in this movie. <laughs> so he was talking about his nieces when he said that. Yeah. You want me to up the, the creepiness factor in that? Hell yeah. 
in the commentary, Rodriguez talks about how he didn't meet them until they were 16. <laughs> Jesus. I hope they're not 16 in the movie. <laughs> it's possible. Oh. So <laughs> they're both real bitchy. And oh, understandably so, because they're like, it's past 10. Nobody ever fucking showed up. We can't watch your kid all night. We got shit to do. And uh, she kind of pushes him out of the house and she grabs Tony. And Tony's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to get my pets. And he goes and gets his tarantula, <laughs> his turtle, and his scorpion. These are all Rebel Rodriguez's pets. And those are legitimately okay. his pets in the movie. And that's why the, the shot of him knowing how to pick up the scorpion by the tail and everything, like, that's that's all legit. There is. And he really put them all in a cage together, huh? Yes. Are you ready to rumble? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they get in the car and he's like, He's talking about other shit. He's like, but what about my pocket bike? And she's like, it's in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, the fucking crazy babysitter twins start beating the shit out of the car. <laughs> I want my $2. They're speaking Spanish and shit and cussing her out. And uh, one of them's up on top of the car when uh, when she when they drive away. And she like falls down off the trunk and onto the ground. And it looks brutal. That's real. <laughs> It's not oh. one of the nieces. It is a stunt woman, but that's not a CG shot. Like watching the behind the scenes of it, they're filming. You can see Rodriguez in frame watching it on the monitor. And then you see it in real life behind that. And you can watch his face as her leg does that shit. Cause it hits the ground first, you know, and like the look on his face yeah. is like, I know I should feel bad, but I feel so good right now. <laughs> and then of course she gets up and starts running. So it's like, Oh hell yeah, we got it. We got the shot. <laughs> Anyways. Meanwhile, everyone from the hospital meets up at JT's and uh, Hague, they're outside right now. And uh, Hague busts out his all or nothing box and it's got badges in it. And he deputizes and arms everyone except Ray <laughs> and Cherry even hands him a gun. And then Tolo turns around and looks like, oh, uh -uh, and takes the gun back from him. And they're walking up the hill up, up to the barbecue bone shack and uh, Hague gives a speech. He's like, hey, don't shoot yourselves. Don't shoot each other. And then he goes back to walking again and he turns around. But especially don't shoot me. <laughs> Tolo should have been fucking listening. <laughs> <laughs> so once they go inside, they find dead JT. But it's cool. He's just passed out and covered in his own barbecue. And sausages that look like intestines. Yep. But uh, Ray picks one up and eats it, and it's some damn good barbecue. <laughs> because every time you see JT, he's either talking about his sauce, drinking his sauce out of a cup, something about his sauce, because he's going to have the best barbecue in Texas. He's just got to figure out the one thing that his sauce is missing. Yep. Meanwhile, <laughs> back to Dakota. Her and Tony pull up at some house. And she makes her mother of the year move. And this is the scene that was one of the first things written and why uh, Rodriguez cast his son in this role, because he knew he wanted to do this. She gives Tony a gun out of the glove box and tells him to shoot anyone that isn't her. And he's like, what about dad? And she's like, especially dad. <laughs> <laughs> and she gets out of, well, actually she says, be careful. Don't point it at yourself. You could blow your face off. And she gets out of the car and makes it like five steps away from the car. And you see the car in the background and there's a pop and a flash. <laughs> it is so fucked up. I know. Right. And she, and it's funny just because of the verbiage used and what happens when you have kids. Let me know how funny it is. Uh, no, I'm picking up what you're putting down, but she goes back <laughs> in and looks and he has shot his face off. Now, what happened is Tony wasn't there for that at all. 
him with the gun was him playing with a water gun to get that shot. And then they removed it and painted in the real gun. Oh, the rest of the movie, they shot two ways. One with a dummy that's a stand in for Tony, which is what you see in the cut we've all seen. But they filmed Rebel for the rest of the movie, making it to the base, escaping the base, even making it to Mexico. And there's one cut of that that Rodriguez kept. And that's the version that he plans to show Tony. And then in an interview, he said, you know, when I sit him down to tell him Santa isn't real, the Easter Bunny isn't real. Oh, and you shot your face off in that movie when you were a kid. That's how I'm going to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, for the rest of the movie, there is no Tony, which is why I can laugh about this in one way in a real world sense. It's absolutely horrifying, but it's mom's fault. Yeah. But in the other sense, it's really cool that the way Rodriguez did it, at least, that if he was going to traumatize anyone, it'd be in his own son. And the way he did it, he didn't traumatize him. And there's a really weird scene towards the end of the movie that him shooting two different ways for the rest of the movie is explained. And I'll get to that. Anyways. So after seeing this horrific scene, Bill and a pack of zombies pop up. Dakota manages to grab what's left of Tony and run into daddy's house. Yes, she's greeted at the door with, I thought I told you not to ever come back here or something like that. And she's like, let me in, daddy. Like, oh, shit, Earl's her dad. And that is the cop from the end of Death Proof. I guess he retired after his theory on that. Yep. So back at JT's, they go over what vehicles JT has, which he's got a convertible and uh, a Jesse James chopper that uh, he gave him a plate of barbecue so damn good that he built him this chopper free of charge. And, uh... Ray and Cherry head into the back to the real bone shack, JT's bedroom. (laughs) And in this scene, in my opinion, Rose channels her Tatum Riley fucking perfectly because she's given Ray shit about his comedic dick and how he was the asshole in the relationship. And uh, it's just she's really good in this scene. All Ray wants to do is bitch about that jacket because he looked for it for two weeks. And he tells her, did you ever check what's in the pocket? And she's like, no. And she goes, look, and he's like, other pocket. (laughs) And holy shit, it was a wedding ring inscribed with two against the world. And of course, sexy time ensues. And just as shit gets really hot, the film gets stuck, burns away, and you get hit with missing reel. (laughs) Two things. One, if you're pissed at this point because you wanted to see more of Rose McGowan, watch Doom Generation. Also, the missing reel is a setup for what's about to happen because... Robert Rodriguez saw this happen at the Alamo draft house with Tarantino when Tarantino was showing a film and they were getting ready to, to assemble it or line it up to run it. And Tarantino's like, fuck, I'm missing a reel. And I forget what movie it was and what scene it was. And it was like, well, well then this happens and then we're not going to know. And then there's a scene later that says it could have gone either way. So let's just run it and see what happens. And so they really did this. And it was a, a section of the movie missing where you don't have an answer about something. And it was ambiguous and the audience loved it. So he's like, fuck it. I'm going to put this in a movie. I did not know that backstory. That's really awesome. So after like nine seconds of missing reel on the screen, you cut to the bone shack engulfed in flames <laughs> and like dramatic music. And she's oh, yeah. like, what? <laughs> And Haig is being drugged back inside, bleeding profusely out from the neck. And he's like, I knew one day I'd get shot, but I never thought it'd be fucking you, Tola, or something like that. (laughs) And we've got Earl, Dakota, Tony, the twins, the realtor, and more people are all there now. Haig is all of a sudden like subordinate to El Rey because El Rey says something. He's like, that's an order. And Haig is like, yes, sir. 
And he's like, if I would have known you were that old, Ray, we wouldn't have had these issues. And, and it's a it's a double-edged sword because, one, you never get to find out who El Rey is and why he's reacting that way. Nope. But they also never explained what El Rey did to make Haig not trust him, not want to give him a gun to begin with. Exactly. That's great. So, of course, Haig now tells Tolo, give him the gun. Give him all the guns. <laughs> Yes. And so Ray then leads everyone out in a heroic charge, except for Tolo, who gets ripped apart by zombies. In true Savini fashion. Yes. So the heroic plan's fucked anyways because there's too many zombies outside. So Cherry goes to get Ray's truck after Skip, that's the reeler, pusses out and Ray's, you know, giving her cover fire. She makes it all the way down to the truck and then drives it into the burning building. And, uh,. <laughs> They all hop in the in and on their rides because now we've got uh, Dakota on a motorcycle and Cherry jumps on the back and she's like, uh, who are you? And she's like, I'm Cherry. And she's like, yeah, you are. <laughs> and they all tear off Ray on the pocket bike. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and they're driving down the road and they're mowing down zombies and JT's dog. <laughs> JT's dog gets run over in the process. I never caught that. Yes. I'm usually laughing so hard <laughs> from fucking Ray having to pop a wheelie to ride the mini bike yes. so he doesn't drag his feet on the fucking ground that I'm not paying attention right now. Oh, pocket bikes are awesome. Yeah, the, the Ray's truck actually runs over JT's dog. And in the commentary, uh, Rodriguez is like, this is the point in the movie where you're supposed to understand. I did the two things you never do. I killed the kid and I killed the dog. You have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> next. <laughs> and so eventually they end up on this bridge that's blocked by the infected. And uh, Ray's like hollering back at Hague. He's like, how much ammo we got? And he's like, not enough. And then all of a sudden, all the zombies are mowed down from behind. Hooray, it's the military. Oh, shit, it's the troops from the beginning because <laughs> they got the fucking yep. gas mask and everything. They're there after the shit, man. <laughs> and so you see Muldoon reveal himself and there's some dialogue between him and Ray that makes it sound like Muldoon knows Ray, too. Like, what the fuck is this guy's history? And he knocks him the fuck out. And the group is now captured and quarantined with the other survivors at the base, including Abby. And he recognizes Ray as El Ray. <laughs> and he spills the beans. So the gas is DC2, and Abby was dealing it to the military. But they found out about his stash, 10 floors beneath them, and they wanted to cut him out. There's not a cure, but microdosing works. Hence the gas mass rigs we've been seeing on all the troops. But some people are completely immune and could be the cure. And that's condensed version, but that gives all of it. And then Abby, <laughs> Abby says it pretty quick. I do want to point out he's El Ray, and that is also the name of Robert Rodriguez's television network. That is right. Enter rapist number one. And that's what he's called <laughs> in the credits. So that's what I'm going to stick with. It's Quentin Tarantino. It's Tarantino. Yep. And Rodriguez did not write this part for him. And he was having him do a read of it. I think it was they were doing a table read. And. Quentin just ended up being the one reading for rapist number one. And he said he slipped back into his Richie character from, from dust till dawn. Okay. With just that, that creepy murderous molesting type guy. And, uh, who really likes feet. And, uh, <laughs> he's like, now, wait a second. If you can actually just kind of hold on to that, we're going to have you play rapist number one. So he does. And a lot of his dialogue coming up here is really bad. I'm just going to say it. It's bad. It's not very good yeah. acting. Um, 
It's just not good. And Tarantino's capable of doing it. I still think his best acting is from Dust Till Dawn. And I'm not going to say the dialogue, but the, we'll say the coffee scene in uh, Pulp Fiction. Even though what he's saying isn't very cool, I like I buy the character. You know what I mean? Yeah. At any rate, rapist number one snags Cherry, who he calls Peggy, which I think is fucking hilarious, <laughs> and Dakota, and takes him out of the holding cell and into an elevator. And they go down. Because he's going to go get his dick wet. And he's going to say this later, but I'm fixing to skip over some shit because there's a little lull here we really don't need. So while they're away, <laughs> one quick thing. The guy playing the saxophone in, in the cell with them, that's Rodriguez's saxophonist. Okay. So like when you hear him playing the theme in the jail, it's because that's who really played on it. But uh, Ray and JT end up kind of, they do the thing where it sounds like they're ha- having a conversation, but they're actually sending signals to each other that they're about to attack the guards and they do. Yeah. And they overcome the guards, but JT does get shot in the fucking stomach in the process. So now we've got the two brothers, both fatally wounded. We're just waiting on them to bleed out. So now armed Ray and Abby head off to save the day and they go down 10 floors down to where the shit is (laughs) and they find Muldoon and he's already there attempting to steal the shit. But when him and his guys touched it, it went into an alarm and, uh, (laughs) This is when Muldoon gets on the radio. He's like, I forget rapist's number one real name in the movie because in the credits, he's rapist number one. But whatever, he calls for him on the radio. He's like, uh, he's not available. Get him the fuck down here. Uh, he's getting his dick wet, sir. (laughs) So fucking funny. But at any rate, Muldoon is like, now, wait a second. This is mine. I fucking earned it. And he tells this story about how he killed Osama bin Laden. Yep. But that wasn't the plan and it wasn't supposed to go down like that. So the government gassed him and his men with the DC too. Now they need the shit to survive. And, uh, he's given a long speech to tell this story. And what's been happening is when these guys have the mask off to talk, they slowly start zombieing out. It starts with the little boils and then it gets worse. And he's been talking so long, he starts to turn into this big-ass fucking monster. Resident Evil 4. Yes. And the film's getting all fucked up at the same time, too. And, of course, Abby and Ray are like, holy shit, man, you killed Osama bin Laden? Like, the man really (laughs) fucked you, man. Thank you for your service. And they blow him away. (laughs) Um, One thing I do want to point out, I think... Putman in uh, Club Dread wanted to be Abby. Probably. <laughs> I'm being so serious, especially with the ridiculous lines like, I'm here for your balls. <laughs> so meanwhile, for lack of better words, back in the rape room, we've got Cherry and Dakota kind of, kind of getting to know each other. And Dakota's like, I'm a doctor, blah, 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 blah. There's just a little bit of back and forth. And uh, Cherry ends up showing off useless talent number 66 and does a backbend. Now, she has been saying this throughout the movie. I didn't want to stop on every single one of them because it's like, do you know how to ride a motorcycle? Useless talent number 32. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. I wanted to save it all for right here because that was not in the script. That is something Rose McGowan says all the time. And I did not know that when she said it in front of Rodriguez, Rodriguez said, that's fucking awesome and wrote it into the script. And that set up this for uh, Dakota to be able to say, you know, all those useless talents you'll eventually find a use for and we're going to have the setup later on with the backbend which is also what the movie opens with when she's doing the go-go dance so there's the thread for that and he also said that rose ad-libbed a lot of her dialogue which makes me wonder if her dialogue that i like in the movie is her and the dialogue that i don't like was written for (laughs) 
But uh, the other part tying into this useless talent conversation with the girls is Rose says, you know, even though, yeah, whatever, I'm, I just feel like I'm spiraling down. And Dakota's like, you know, well, that, you know, that girlfriend also told me that whenever you feel like you're spiraling down, just reach up, which is stupid, but it's just so they can play off of it later. Whatever. I don't like it. So back to rapist number one. Um <laughs> Jesus. He comes back in and he tells rapist number two to turn on the radio and tells Cherry to dance because he's looking at her. He's like, you're a dancer. Fucking dance. Now, what he turns on on the radio, and I didn't catch this till the second watch, is a Go-Go-esque cover of the Dead Kennedys' Too Drunk to Fuck. Oh, really? Yes. I've never caught that. It is so strange hearing it that style, especially with a female singer, but that's what it is. So she starts half-ass dancing and... Fucking rapist is going on and on about all the fucked up strippers he's seen. And and he's been to Morocco, but he's never seen a one leg stripper. (laughs) And Sherry quickly has enough, turns around, roundhouse kicks him, breaking off her peg leg. Then she stabs him in the eye with the splintered leg and breaks it off in his eyeball, Lucio Fulci style. Nice. Now, I'm saying that because I've never knowingly watched the movie unless you made me watch it talking about, uh, Lucio Fulci's zombie. You watched it at a birthday party of mine in my garage. Okay. When they were talking about it in the commentary, I did have to look up the splinter scene. And if anyone hasn't seen the movie, watch the movie. If you don't like zombie flicks and you're not going to watch the movie, at least look up the splinter eye scene because it is (laughs) fucking intense. Anyways. You might as well throw in the zombie versus shark scene too in your Googling. Um, I'm sorry, what? There's a zombie that eats a fucking shark (gasps) in the water in that movie. That scene, I remember. (laughs) So he's now very pissed off and he's feeling the effects of not having his mask on because he's been at his mask off running his fucking mouth. And he drops his pants and everyone looks in horror as his fucking junk is melting off. And he's like waddling his way over to Cherry to still go through with this shit. (laughs) And he's like adamant that he's going to at least pull off something. You need your gas. No, fuck the gas. Fuck it. I'm just going to have to make this quick. This guy makes movies for my children. <laughs> and you know, we covered dead alive and the, the, the dude's ear falling in the pudding and them eating it. And I'm like, Oh, this custard scene. Yeah. Grossest thing I've ever seen. This might beat it. I know. Right. But suddenly Dakota shoots both rapists with her leg strap needle gun thing. <laughs> when she shoots rapist one, it gets him in the other eye. And he's turning into a like barely held together jello suit at this point. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Ray and Abby come busting in and Ray shoves an M16 with a grenade launcher onto Cherry's peg leg. And don't get me started on how her shooting it does not make sense throughout the entire film. I'm glad you're bringing that up because early on in the movie, uh, Rodriguez says he was talking to something. I think he was talking to... Uh, Michael Bean about, uh, Hey, do you want me to reload in this shot? Cause, uh, I shot this many times and he's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You don't need to worry about reloading later on in the movie. We're going to have a gun that never gets reloaded, but never mind that it's shooting without anyone touching the trigger. <laughs> so you could just hang that. How many times I've shot shit up. It's that kind of movie. <laughs> oh, but as ridiculous as it is, Ray tells her to go ahead and use her new powers. And she presumably, it's kind of dumb, but presumably launches a grenade right into rapist number one's crotch as he's puking this tentacle sack thing on the floor. And he flies through the door and into the room where the other bad guys are. She machine guns them all down. Now, through this whole thing, too drunk to fuck is still played on that radio. So then Cherry shoots the radio. 
So the group heads off and they free and arm all the other people that were left in, in the holding cell. Even the sax guy? Yes, even the sax guy. And uh, they're heading off to two choppers that they saw earlier is what Ray says. There's two choppers I saw because there's this whole thing where he's like, who here's a pilot? And he raises his hand because like this motherfucker could do anything <laughs> and skips all like, well, I'm a pilot, but I'm not flying. <laughs> he's like, yes, you are some shit and uh they all head off except for jt and Haig because they're both mortally wounded and ray gives Haig a detonator and uh he's like three minutes <laughs> and uh cherry hops on the back of the jesse james special with ray and they take off and start mowing down baddies don't forget about the other way <laughs> yeah because she gets on the motorcycle she gets on the back like you normally would and he's like get on the other way and then she straddles him on the front and he's like the other way <laughs> because <laughs> he's wanting her to sit backwards on the back so he can spin the bike around while she shoots. So for some reason, after they mow down a bunch of zombies, they're just not on the bike anymore. And everybody else is on foot kind of being led by Abby. <laughs> they all meet back up and Abby goes, he peeks around a corner. Everything's fine. And then he steps out from around the same corner and gets his head blown off. This is after he gives a badass speech about how he's like the badass and one of the pilots. He's going to escort him and let me leave, right? Which didn't make sense to begin with. He's the scientist that's going to make the cure. They're all going to go make the cure. Why is he not in the back? <laughs> after, after he gets blown away, Cherry's like, so do we know any other biological scientists or some shit like that? Biochemist, yeah. Yes, yeah. biochemist. And uh, meanwhile, back to the barbecue bros. Oh, fuck. I've missed something that I should have. Okay. Back when everything goes berserk at the bone shack and they're trying to leave and like the, after the missing reel, JT's sitting there licking something. He's like, whatever this is, it's perfect. This is what's been missing from my barbecue sauce. And Haig is like, that's blood. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Earlier when they're in the cell, he's like, oh, it's salt. I figured it out. All I ever needed was a little more damn salt. <laughs> So anyways, he has now perfected his recipe in his head. So as they're sitting there bleeding out, they start talking and they basically make peace because Haig agrees that he'll lower JT's rent if he'll give him the barbecue sauce. And he starts telling him the recipe and he's like, holy shit. And he's like bleeding out and dying and pulling a little notepad out of his pocket. Yes. And he's like 12 pounds, 12 hours. You use aluminum foil. Fuck no, I don't use aluminum foil. <laughs> fresh tomatoes canned no shit <laughs> it's like jt's like you take this recipe to your grave and Haig's like i don't think that's going to be a problem because <laughs> he does right <laughs> oh, i thought Haig was the one that ended up pulling the trigger on the detonator no it ends up being jt, JT? yep okay because jt takes it from him <laughs> we go back outside and we see shit blowing up everywhere <laughs> yeah and ray's like that's our son <laughs> And he looks at Cherry and he's like, it's all you now. <laughs> and she shoots a grenade and it launches her up into the air like a fucking rocket. And she's fucking shooting zombies from in the air and fucking launching war grenades from in the air. And all that shit of her flying in the air is really Rose McGowan doing wire work. Yep. There is a couple of stand-in things in there, but a good chunk of it's actually her. So still mowing down and blowing shit up. They finally make it over to the choppers. And, uh... <laughs> Oh, shit, I'm getting ahead of myself. They're making their way to the choppers. But after this grenade flying mow down montage <laughs> that culminates in Cherry doing the back bend when one of the zombies goes to shoot an RPG at her and the rocket goes right under her fucking back and blows something up. She pops back up and puts on these sunglasses that she found. I don't understand the reason for this shot. 
other than to her to be distracted as the zombies start shooting at her from behind, but Ray pops up and takes it out. But it spins around fast enough to shoot Ray, too. It's because cool guys don't look at explosions. <laughs> she has to wear sunglasses at night as she goes into this battle. It all makes sense. Given the filmmakers, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Meanwhile, back over to the other survivors. They're all loading into one of the choppers. And you'll notice Dakota looks mildly panicky, like she's looking for something, and runs off into the other chopper that nobody else has gone into. The reason for that was because in the Tommy Survives cut, she loses Tommy in this scene. And she goes to look for him in the other helicopter. That's why Dakota randomly runs off to the other helicopter, if anybody's ever wondered. I was one of those people that always fucking wondered. <laughs> and once inside, she finds Bill. That fucker. <laughs> He's followed her all the way here. <laughs> but Daddy shows up just in time to blow Bill away. He's like, I always hated him. About as useless as a pecker on a pope. <laughs> <laughs> So they go and get on the, the other chopper that everybody was getting in with uh, Skip and the twins going to pilot this thing. <laughs> and it takes off and it does this crazy steep angle takeoff that Rodriguez saw. And there's an actual chopper that takes off like this. And he's like, dude, if we just had all these zombies in front of it, it'd look awesome. And that's what they did. And the fucking rotor blades chop up all the zombies like in 28 weeks later. They did do that there, didn't they? I think so. Because I think I bitched about it. <laughs> Meanwhile... Of course, Ray's got to die now because he's, he's the hero. He's, he's going to die. He got, he got the shit shot out of him. And Cherry's there and she's all crying and shit. And, uh, and she's like, but, but it was going to be two against the world. And Ray's like, it's still going to be two against the world. And he puts his hand on her stomach. I never miss. And then he croaks. So Cherry has had a really bad night. <laughs> if we just stop for a minute and put all this into perspective. This is one night, isn't it? Yeah. And so she's got nothing left to live for. She's spiraling. But then a voice from above says, reach up. And it's fucking Dakota hanging out of the chopper with a rope. And Cherry reaches up. And chopper flies away with her dangling from the rope. And they fly away. And the film basically fades into an epilogue. And we see Cherry leading this caravan of survivors away from a post-apocalyptic background that when it first cuts to it, I always think it's going to be the back of the temple and fucking from dust till dawn, but it's not. <laughs> After seeing it the first time, I always expect that temple. Yes. And uh, she's riding a horse and a fucking zombie pops out. And now she's got a Gatlin gun leg and she's got a narration going over it. And uh, she's talking about how, uh, oh, no, 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 we also see where they're headed. And it's a fucking beach with all these temples, these South American temples. When they were in the jail, uh, Ray's like, I say we, I say we head south to Mexico, put our backs against the ocean and defend ourselves. And this shot, the overhead shot of the temples uh, by the beach, that's real. That is a place called Tulum, Mexico. Nice. I don't think they really landed the chopper on the temple, though. Uh, <laughs> Rodriguez didn't go into that. But so we're seeing this and, and her narration is like, it's just like you said, it would be Ray. We'll, we'll, we'll make our peace here, blah, 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 two against the world in time for it to reveal the little daughter that's strapped to her back in Shakespeare clothing for some reason. But uh, <laughs> that's it. That's the end of the movie. What a wild ride it is, though. It's fucking bonkers as shit. I always say that I like Death Proof more, and that's probably because it's got A, Kurt Russell, and B, it's a slasher flick. Yeah, and it's grounded but, in reality. Yeah, but with the goal being to make a grindhouse flick, if it was a competition, I think Robert won. Most definitely. But they're still both good in their own ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Some people don't like one or the other. Hell, I was one of the people. I thought fucking Planet Terror was too absurd. And then once you realize that the point of the movie is for it to be absurd and go for the ride, just I should hate this movie. I should hate all the illogical stuff in it, but it's so over the top. There's no getting around it. That's the point. Yeah, he had a goal and he met it perfectly and he executed it perfectly and made a a fun movie along the, the way. And... I hate that you have to know the backstory or what they are trying to do to get that, but it makes it such a better movie when you know that. Absolutely. I mean, right down to, uh, so when the, during the intermission, when it shows the things like the preview starting soon and like the little thing with the little kittens and then the kittens get replaced by the big tiger and it's like adults only and all that shit. When Tarantino would do his movie parties, he put those in between the movies from real old grindhouse shit. And when Rodriguez saw it, he's like, fuck yeah, he remade them for his own stylized version. But that's like, this really was like two, two buddies that used to have movie night and said, we can make something like this. And they did. And that's fucking cool. So, uh, you know, it's Grindhouse. It may be um, not your run-of-the-mill horror, but come on. We did one movie with a slasher that uses a car as a weapon and a fucking end-of-the-world apocalyptic zombie flick. That's pretty horror to me. You don't get much more horror than that. And, <laughs> and they're just they're just both fun. And they're hard to compare, and I think that's what the critics did at the time, which did a lot of uh, damage that shouldn't have been done. Everybody tried to do horror movies more seriously. At this point, exactly. Right. And and, and the way they're still doing it now. And he went the batshit crazy route and it worked and and it fulfilled that goal. And this is one of those movies where I go into the episode watching it again for the podcast thinking I didn't like this one that much. And then I realized that, hey, I haven't seen it since I went to the theater and I saw the Grindhouse double feature. And then I bought the Steel Series box and I watched it once and, and let's just watch it with new eyes. And it's like, damn, he made a really awesome movie. And you really do get their their flair on it because the first half of Death Proof is unique in its own right. Like it, it doesn't feel like a Tarantino movie. Honestly, no. it feels like a seventies horror slasher flick. And then the second half of death proof is 100% a Tarantino flick. Yeah. And then you get Robert Rodriguez who has done almost every end of the spectrum. If you think about it, yeah, he's gone from El Mariachi to getting to turn his indie flick into a big budget movie with Desperado to getting to do from dust till dawn with all these big actors and this big budget doing a horror movie to, you know, making this and then going into to kids movies, right? He makes fucking children's films now doing everything himself. Like he started out doing making his first film. Cause he's honestly the most punk rock director you can cover as far as I'm just going to do it fucking all on my own. I'll just make my own companies to do it. He's the horror version of George Lucas. Yeah. Yeah, he is he is the most punk rock in the mainstream DIYer. I still I'll still put Lloyd Kaufman at the top. <laughs> yeah, but he he started out doing it even more low budget than Lloyd Kaufman. Yes. And then turned it into a successful empire. And and this isn't a director episode, so we're not here to talk about Rodriguez, but I mean he he did a fucking awesome job with this movie and it's really cool that they took this vision and did something and, and made it happen because if you took two other even if they are prominent horror movie directors and they're like oh, I'm going to do a groundhouse movie I don't think it would have 
been able to come out with the wide theater release that this got. It's because it was Tarantino and Rodriguez. Yes. Cause they, they had proved once before that as zany as it may be working together on from dusk till dawn, that they may actually have something here. And you're right. I think the critics really dumped on it. I mean, I was looking at, I don't know about the numbers. I looked at the independent numbers um, just for planet terror and it's, it states a $10 million budget, which just looking at all the effect shots in that movie, 10 million Mind and more. that cast. Yeah, that is crazy there's no way to do that other than doing it in-house which is what they did he said the of the 450 some odd effect shots close to 400 of them were done in-house it's just insane but the movie only made 11 million that's like geez that doesn't even cover marketing i don't understand why these flopped as hard as they did and with some of the shit that comes out now as far as it being absurd and people loving it there's an audience for this there always is but yeah, we've we've seen it before. We've seen turds get accolades and we've seen amazing films not find their audience for 10, 20 years. And it really kind of goes into that nerdum, basically, where to fully respect the films, you have to know what they were trying to do. Yep. Right. And your general audience is not going to get that. And that's the problem that indie filmmakers and people who get into the genres like, you know, the crazy exploitation, violent films. And horror films face regularly, like they're doing something very traditional. They're doing something that was awesome at a time. They're trying to recreate it and it, it doesn't take off well. Like when people, you know, try to make a period piece and they, they, they say, oh, I did it like the plays were originally made back then and they get a fucking Oscar for it. Right. Yep. And these guys were, were doing the same thing, but from a different angle and, you know, it's just, it's just not as well received. And if you talk to horror fans, you can find a lot that like Planet Tear and respect it for what it is. And you can find a lot that do not like Death Proof, which is mind-blowing on the research I did, the the amount of hatred for that film. But you can find the people that liked it. They loved it. And these guys made two passion projects after they were famous and went old school on it. And it's just a lot of fun, and I'm glad we we were finally able to cover these two films. Yeah, and I'm glad that Tarantino did Death Proof because I got exposed to, you know, Vanishing Point and Bullet and Gone 60 Seconds, like all that stuff because of my dad. And right. there was a time in my life where I was kind of into cars and not understanding, like, how can you have a movie with a 45-minute car chase? You fucking can, and we already did it, like, in the 60s and the 70s. And for Tarantino to be like, you know what? If I can do whatever the fuck I'm going to do, I'm going to do a car chase movie. And that came out of left field for everybody. It's like, you, you mean the guy who says MF and the N-word as many times as possible in any movie and just wants to shock people with that is going to make a car chase movie? And he did, and he was true to it. I mean... I don't know how much of that stuff you've watched or can remember watching. Like the whole car chase scene is just the way it's shot. I mean, the angles, the framing, all of it is just straight up paying homage to that shit. And it's coming on yeah. the heels of a fucking serial killer. That's trying to get these girls. So that's totally different. And it, it's still fun. Like, like I say all the time, it's a fun fucking ride. And I think more people should see it. Both of these films, if they've ever been turned off by what they've heard or the critics, like understand what you're sitting down to watch. I sound like a pretentious asshole. Understand the art that's being intended by the makers. And there's something there. And I do not think that at this time, either film is available to just watch streaming 
with your subscription service, but I think they're well worth whatever the rental fee is. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, you know, Quentin Tarantino wanting everybody to see film in, in the theaters might be rolling over in his grave that he's not in yet, but you, you should still see the flicks. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's it for the Grindhouse episode, so you guys will have to tune in on the next episode where I bury the hatchet and we finally cover Adam Green's Hatchet franchise. Yeah. You gotta be fucking kidding me. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. I wanted it to be impressive. Scary tends to impress. <laughs>